Hello! Welcome to Clockworks, a Legion podcast. I'm Paul Moffat. I'm Jan Moffat. And this is the second of our special bonus episodes focusing on Fargo. We'll be talking about Fargo Season 2 this time. I don't have a pun. I tried really hard to think of one. I, I, I was like... Fargo. Fargo. That's the only real pun you have. Here, here's the only one that I'm, I'm giving with this preamble because I couldn't commit to it, even as a cheesy bad pun. Was like something about like we're going into this with a lot of baggage, like a lot of cargo, Mm. like a lot of Fargo. But it was just too far to go. That's too far to go. (laughs) No, no. Uh, it's 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 a a difficult life you leave when you when when you've gone down this road of puns and you just can't stop i set a precedent for myself that i can't uphold which is the story of my life we can't we can't have this much preamble no this is gonna be we need to get snapping this is gonna be so long okay fargo season two has so much in it you guys every character is a main character It has so many characters and so much plot and so much to think and talk about. So Fargo Season 2 has, uh, of way more than Fargo Season 1, has a lot of connections to Legion, which mm-hmm. I really enjoyed this time because it's kind of fun to watch. So, I mean, the major ones are the cast members, like Gene Smart is in this, Rachel Keller is in this, Brad Mann, who plays Rudy in Legion, plays one of the Kitchen Brothers, him and his twin brother, who is not in Legion, um, who play, plays uh, Gail Kitchen. And um, Mackenzie Gray has a small role as well. Yeah. So that was that was kind of fun. And I think all them. of these, even if we didn't know it from extra textual sources, which we do, you can kind of figure out that all of those people got their roles on Legion based on the quality of their mm-hmm. Performance. performances in this. Yeah, like Rachel Keller does so well in this, and I can really see why he put her into... Legion. She's a very different character, but... And frankly, a lot of the the behind-the-scenes people, too, there's a few behind-the-scenes changes between Fargo Season 1 and Fargo Season 2. Most notably, the music supervisor is different this season. But all the people who are working on Fargo Season 2, a lot of them end up working Mm. on Legion also. Yeah. The costume person, the Carol Case, the costume supervisor, is the same between the two of them. And you'll notice that some of the outfits, I don't know if they're literally the same outfits but the kitchen brothers wear the same thing as oliver yeah and it, there's a time when floyd gene smart is wearing this red coat that looks exactly like sid's red coat throughout legion and just a lot of the like the it's, i mean it's very 70s and so is, fargo has that 60s 70s aesthetic as well and so yeah there's way more connections to uh to legion this time around and i think yeah. we'll mention a few more kind of as we go Think? Yeah, yeah, I think we will. Okay, so should we get into the episode summaries? Let's do it. All right, so episode one, Waiting for Dutch. We meet the Gerhardt family who run Fargo Organized Crime. Dodd and Bear compete for control when Otto, the patriarch, suffers a stroke. Their youngest brother, Rye, shoots a judge at a Waffle House along with the cook and waitress. Rye is immediately hit by a car driven by Peggy Blum- Blumquist, she brings him home in shock, I guess, and her husband, Ed, beats him to death in self-defense. A young state trooper, Lou Salverson, is on the case along with his father-in-law, Sheriff Hank Larson. Meanwhile, the Kansas City Syndicate are heading north to take over the Gerhardt's territory. So I think we can immediately see 
I'm not going to keep doing connection this kind of connection to season one, but we can immediately see the complexity of this season compared with season one when you give that yeah, summary. Exactly. Like, there are a lot of moving parts in this episode and in this season. A lot of different players, a lot of characters doing a lot of different things. Um, and I didn't mention this in the summary, but it starts off with this uh, movie being filmed called The Massacre at Sioux Falls, which we'd already heard about in season one. And they're waiting for Dutch, who is uh, Ronald Reagan, who will be a character later on the show. And that's just this weird beginning of... Yeah. So, yeah. So, connection... The, I want to talk with each episode about the meaning of the title, just as mm-hmm. we did in season one. And the yeah. title of this episode is Waiting for Dutch. Dutch, as they mention in that first black and white filming of a movie dutch is a nickname for ronald reagan if you didn't know that now you do Mm -hmm. waiting for dutch is a reference to the samuel beckett play waiting for godot and if you're unfamiliar with that the nutshell version of that is two people are waiting for godot to show up and he never does and Mm -hmm. godot is a metaphor for god in waiting for godot so in this first black and white movie in the filming of the massacre at sioux falls the two characters, the actor and the director, are waiting for Reagan to show up, and he never does. So that first black and white sequence has a clear, like, it's waiting for Godot in miniature. They're talking mm-hmm. about there's things and waiting around for someone to show up who never does. What is the connection of that to the rest of the episode? Why is that little black and white preface here? I think it's connects to the entire season. Yeah. So you have like this uh, massacre at Sioux Falls where all of these Native Americans have been killed and all these uh, soldiers have been killed. And there's the one Native American guy who they, of course, are calling Indian all throughout this standing up there. And he's the last one alive. And in the end of the whole season, the Indian is the last one alive. And so it's kind of, showing you the whole story before it even happens. Yeah. What is that? I mean, I'm curious about how this episode, I agree with you. I think throughout all the episode titles connect to the entire season, I think more strongly than they did in season one. Mm -hmm. When we talk about what does this episode title mean? We're always going to have to say how it relates to the entire season. Yeah. Waiting for Godot, waiting for Dutch. I mean, they're also waiting for Dutch in the sense of the towns are waiting for Regan. Regan isn't president yet but will be soon and the whole season is about waiting for the 80s to start yeah it's 79 and they're waiting for the 80s to start and the 80s will start with reagan becoming president and all that comes with that so all through this season characters and we'll talk about this at the end of our episode characters are talking about how the world isn't right Mm -hmm. because they're waiting for someone to come and make it right and when I was giving a little summary of Waiting for Godot, right? Godot represents God. Does Reagan represent God then in this show? Hmm. That's uh And maybe we can... I don't know if he does, but maybe he represents... See, in real life, I don't think <laughs> Reagan saved America, but there are people who do think that. And there's definitely, in this in this fictional world of this show, it seems like he's there to save them. He's there well, to save, help save America and save the world. And Godot is a god who never sh- shows up. Yes. So if Reagan is the savior America's waiting for, 
and he's Godot, he's never going to show up. That is, well, he never shows never up gonna... in the season. Yeah, and he, he does. I think we should talk more about Reagan yeah, the, when we get to when it. When we get to it. But in terms of waiting for Godot, right? Reagan, the person, does show up and become president. But Reagan, the savior who makes America great again, <laughs> never shows up in the Godot-ish sense. Like that yeah. savior Reagan is Godot because he never shows up. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Absolutely, yeah. Don't know particularly how that connects to this episode more than to yeah not other, necessarily this the the titles this time around seem like they're always connecting to the next episode and then it, hmm. like they're all kind of in this chain yeah so that might be yeah not quite as one-to-one as you want it to be which noah holly never is one-to-one no he never wants to match things perfectly and this is part of that is the episode titles don't match necessarily what i wanted to mention throughout every episode is there's this connection with aliens this season. And most notably, when we get to the episode, there the, this UFO shows up. And I've heard that some people who didn't watch the show super carefully were like, this spaceship comes out of nowhere and it's this weird deus ex machina. But if you're paying attention, there are aliens throughout this entire season. And so in this first episode... It starts with, uh, there's lights in the sky when Rye steps, after killing, after committing his crime, Rye steps out into the road and this is, he's distracted by these, like, floating lights in the sky and that's when he's hit by the car. And so there's these aliens right away that is, like, these stereotypical, you see some flying lights. Yeah, a flying saucer. And later on, his shoe is in the tree. And so it makes it seem like he's been, like, taken up. Yeah, totally. Yeah. His, and we, his shoe is in the tree because he was hit by a car and it went flying off. But it's still, symbolically, he's gone up somehow. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And I mean, in the whole season as a whole, but even, like, starting in this episode, the cuts is this is the most interesting show I've seen for this, is it has all these, like, split-screen mm-hmm. cuts that make it visually so intriguing and so, like, it's so 70s, and yet it's so, like, like nothing I've ever seen before. So, as with season one, there are people telling stories throughout right. this season. Yes. Noah Hawley likes stories, yep. likes characters who tell stories that have a point to them. And in this episode, Judge Munt, uh, when Rye and the judge are sitting in the diner, Rye says, I'm going to change your mind. And Judge Munt says... One day, Satan came to God and said that he was going to change Job's mind. And he took away Job's land and he took away Job's money, but Job didn't change his mind. Mm -hmm. If the devil couldn't change Job's mind, how are you going to change my mind? This is... I think a quintessential Noah Hawley story. Yeah. Someone, someone yeah, someone asks a question and then the other person just responds with, Hey, here's a story to answer your question. And he, she does give the interpretation of the story. Mm-hmm. But I love Rai's reaction to that interpretation of the story is what? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he is so single minded and and not in her on her level at all. I don't know that there's a lot more to interpret because she interprets that story for yeah, us. Absolutely. And it's connected to, I mean, it casts Rye and by extension the Gerhards as the devil. Yeah. Um, 
And the other story told in this is that Lou is reading a bedtime story to his daughter. He reads a chapter from Five Little Peppers and How They Grew. Right. Do you know Five Little Peppers and How They Grew? I have not read it, but I know of it. So, yeah, I don't really know. I want to draw attention to the stories told, but I don't really know why or how that's particularly significant. Mm -hmm. Other other than, it's adorable baby Molly. Yeah, so I didn't say... (laughs) Lou's, that's connections to season one. Lou's reading it to his daughter. His daughter, whose name is Molly. His name is Molly, baby Molly from season one. It's Molly when she's a baby. She's so cute. And it's Lou. And she's, not, she's not a baby. She's six. She's six. But like, <laughs> it's Molly and she's the best and Lou's the best. And it's her, their family. And mm. I'm so happy oh, to see it's them. It's so great. It's so great. <laughs> your, your voice just got higher and higher there. <laughs> yeah. Two things I want to draw attention to. One more connection to season one, which is Peggy claims that she hit a deer. Mm. She didn't hit a deer. She hit rye, but she says she hit a deer. That's how season one starts with Malvo hitting a deer. Yeah. And the other thing is just to draw attention to Carl Weathers, played by Nick Offerman, is giving this like paranoid rant about you think it's really just a person in a diner. He says, this thing's only getting bigger and I want to draw attention to that because although it's a paranoid rant, uh, he is yeah. completely right. He's a hundred percent right. This thing is only getting bigger. So I just wanted to draw our attention to that yeah. here in season Absolutely. in episode one. Okay. Episode two. Episode two is called before the law, the Kansas city syndicate j- negotiate to join with Fargo, but Dodd is unimpressed at his mother being in charge. Betsy finds the gun from the waffle house shootout while she's with Lou Ed grinds up Rye's body at the butcher shop. Hmm. Meanwhile, both the Gerhards and Mike Milligan from the Kansas City Syndicate are searching for what happened to Rye. So the title of this episode, Before the Law, is a reference to a Jewish parable most famously retold by Kafka in his book, The Trial. There's a man seeking the law. He comes to a gate guarded by a single gatekeeper. The gatekeeper tells the man he can come in, but not yet. The man stays by the gate for years. He bribes the gatekeeper with everything he has, and the gatekeeper accepts the bribes, but says that he's taking them only so you will not think that you have done nothing. Finally, the man is dying. He asks with his last breath the gatekeeper, Everyone seeks the law. I've been here for years. Why have I never seen anyone else at this gate? And the gatekeeper tells him, This gate was made only for you. I'm closing it now. This is a very Kafka story mm-hmm. of like everything is futile and it doesn't matter what you yeah. do because bureaucracy is uh, immutable. Mm-hmm. How is this parable connected to this episode? Why is this the title of this episode? Like when I'm thinking, who is the law in this episode and in this show? The law in the Kafka parable is something that you seek but you don't ever get to mm-hmm. like you can't actually get access to it in you you could really say that hank and lou are the law yeah are the representatives of the law the man is seeking the law because he's trying to find justice in the world he's trying to find justice for himself and he is never granted access to it is there anyone in this episode or this season even seeking justice it kind of seems to me like the opposite yeah like they're before like the law is searching for them mm-hmm. right 
And I think of the time when someone is literally before the law in this episode is when Ed is in the butcher shop and there's a finger on the ground and Lou comes in and Ed is before the law. Yeah. And the law doesn't see him. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And it's right. a very different perspective from the Kafka perspective where the law just doesn't, you aren't able to get access to the law that you want to give yourself justice. Yeah. There's a sense in which Rye doesn't get access to the law. Right. Yes. He sure doesn't. And then throughout the whole season, I think, this sense of futility is something that we're actively interrogating and we're actively some characters are giving into it and some characters are resisting it. And like, what is the point even of bringing things before the law Mm -hmm. is a question. I think that we ask not most strongly in this episode. I think in fact, we ask it most strongly in the episode where Ben and Lou show up at the Gerhard house and Lou's like, am I the only one here who understands what law enforcement means? Yeah. Maybe that also draws attention to the fact that there's a difference between law enforcement and the law. That Lou is the law enforcement, but the actual law that he's trying to enforce seems to be slipping away even from him throughout the season. Hmm. Right? He's trying yeah. to hold people, including like murderers, he's, but also fellow police officers, to a standard that he can't grasp, that's slipping away from him, that he can't get access to, that maybe doesn't even exist. Mm -hmm. Again, I don't think that's most strongly felt in this episode, but I think it's something that's going on through the whole season. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Definitely the law as a concept is very present in this this season and Mm -hmm. in all of Fargo. Um, In terms of the alien connection in this episode, the... War of the Worlds clip plays, read by Richard Burton, and there's lights flashing outside at the very, very end of the episode outside of Bud's Meats. As Lou walks away, and as Ed has kind of gotten away with this grinding up of Rye's body. Right. These aliens are present when these things are going down. They're like this ever-watchful eye. The lines that they say from War of the Worlds, I didn't write them down, but they're like, they were watching over us like zookeepers, or mm-hmm. no, they were watching over us like uh, you would look at ants. I can't remember the exact line. Yeah, basically that kind of idea. In the book and radio drama War of the Worlds, the aliens are definitely malevolent, but in the clip that's read, it's not clear that they're malevolent. Yeah. It's, they're true. like watchful and powerful. Mm-hmm. It's not totally clear in that clip that they're bad. Yeah, I think I would argue as this episode, as this show goes on, as the season goes on, that um, if these aliens are real, which reality, what is that? Um, then hmm. they are benevolent because in the end, they're responsible for Lou's life and Lou's a good man. And I think right. that so watching throughout this, they're seeing Lou. They're mm. seeing what is, they're seeing the goodness and the badness, and they're they're contributing in the end to to the goodness. And the first thing they did was watch Rye. Yeah. And then now they're watching Lou. Yeah, or they're watching, or they're watching Ed. Yeah. And seeing what's going on. So stories told in this episode, there are a lot of stories told in this episode, often short ones. Mm-hmm. So... When 
Mike Milligan is in the car talking to Joe, his boss, about the Gerhards. He talks about the two sons and he says, yeah, the two Gerhard sons, well, a lobster's got a crushing claw and a pinching claw. Which one is which? <laughs> what? Yeah, exactly. Which but Never mind. I don't even want to know. Um, and that's maybe not a story. It's a metaphor. But I think it comes up in this. It's valuable for us talking about stories and metaphorical stories and in this whole season and this whole show because it's exactly the fact that it's an incomprehensible metaphor mm-hmm. that's fitting for the whole show and for this season specifically. Well, Dodd's the crushing one, though. Is he? <laughs> no, they're both crushing. They're both crushing. They're like, both crushing. Which, and which one would be... Like, Dodd wants the war yeah. and Bear doesn't. Yeah. Which one's the crushing claw? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Incomprehensible metaphors are appropriate in this season especially because this season is a lot about meaning and how do you find and create meaning. Mm-hmm. And so when people speak in incomprehensible metaphors, they're isn't a meaning that you can point to behind what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Hank tells Molly a story. Do you want to hear a story? Yeah. Once upon a time, there was an oyster. And a man was fishing, and he pulled the oyster out of the sea. Mm-hmm. But his daughter was with him in the boat, and she said, how would you feel if someone scooped your house up and so tore the, roof off, tore the roof off your house? And the man fishing was Hank, and the girl was his daughter Betsy, Betsy yep. Molly's mother. Um, why is this story there? What's this story showing us? Like, I think it tells us something about Betsy's uh, generally compassionate worldview. And Hank's ability, and Hank's inability to defend his worldview. That, like, Betsy says this, and so they ate hot dogs. Right. You know? Yeah. That he doesn't try to convince her that eating an oyster is a good idea because they're delicious and meant for us to eat or something along those lines he just goes oh, so we ate hot dogs but he didn't want to he has such a soft heart yeah. for his daughter and and i think in general hank's soft heart towards betsy but also hank's soft heart towards the oyster yes exactly right yeah that even when he catches something he wants to have compassion on it and i think he shows that that shows something about hank that we see this entire season is both hank and lou are compassionate towards the people that they are trying to catch sometimes to their detriment. Yeah. Yeah, totally. They're good cops. They're good people. They're good people. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it also is, I mean, the one more thing I would add to it is it's about uh, perspective. It's mm-hmm. about seeing things from other people's perspective. Yeah. Um, oh, I forgot to mention about the aliens. Shoot. To go back to the alien part. In this episode? In this episode. Okay. That the get well soon balloon, when when Betsy finds a balloon, or no, actually Molly finds a balloon, it flashes with lights and it makes you think, oh, those lights were just b- lights flashing on a balloon. Right. But they weren't. It was really aliens. It's there to maybe it's... present doubt into whether what you saw was really true. Yeah. Mike Milligan in the typewriter shop tells a story. He's threatening the typewriter salesman, and he says, I bought a coffee maker. Mm-hmm. Uh, from Sears. From Sears. <laughs> and it was terrible. And it made me think, why is our once great nation going down the crapper? 
And he... I love the way he talks. I love the way he talks. <laughs> I'm an optimist by nature. He always talks up. Yeah, he's fantastic. Um, and he... So I wrote a letter. And he, you know, threatens the typewriter salesman, shoves his tie in and mm-hmm. writes a letter that's, like, choking the salesman. But he also, like, tells a story about how the country isn't as great as it used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a story that gets told again and again throughout the season. It does. The country's not as good as it used to be. Everything's not as good as it used to be. Make America great again. Make America Don't. great again. Uh, we'll... It was never great. Guess what, guys? Um, I think we'll get to the what's going wrong with the world again mm-hmm. all like all throughout i don't want to necessarily say more about it at this moment lou there's a lot of stories lou and hank sit down and uh trade war stories mm, right after like the violence of the episode they trade war stories lou says we had a guy who liked to smoke cigars for breakfast and he one day uh Sniper shot him right through the cigar. He never even knew what hit him. Mm-hmm. And Hank says there was a German captain hung himself in 1945. And I, years later, went to a place where they went on a call and there was a suicide mm-hmm. and a man had hung himself. And neither one of them say the point of like, the crimes that I'm witnessing in my life right now are reminding me of my experiences in war. Yeah. That remains barely subtext. But that's why they're telling these stories is the things that I've seen in war continue to haunt me. Mm-hmm. And the things that, that they've seen in war continue to happen in peacetime. Yeah. Um, although Hank tells Lou... After World War II, so Hank's talking about World War II and Lou is talking about Vietnam. Just yep. so that's that's clear. clear. Um, and Hank tells Lou, when we came back from World War II, there wasn't a murder in this uh, state city. I don't know for nine years. Mm-hmm. You boys came back from Vietnam. Sometimes I wonder whether you brought the war back with you. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing that's going to be coming up again and again through the season about war and war stories and how the war continues to haunt everyone who's connected to it so many times through the season people meet each other and say like did you serve where did you serve you were in vietnam you weren't in vietnam why weren't you know Mm -hmm. and lou is absolutely did bring the war home with him Mm -hmm. and lou is you know, not just a good man, he's the best man mm-hmm. in this season, as in season one. And even he, like... It, so it's not... I think it's valuable that you have Lou be such a good man mm-hmm. who also brought the war home with him because it's not about, like, moral failing is what makes you bring the war home yeah, with you. Yeah, absolutely. You couldn't have a character with fewer moral failings than Lou Salverson. Yeah, he's absolutely, the best. he's the best. And he is still, you know, can't get away from his, the trauma of war. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a connection to Legion just in that um, Hank talks about coming across a guy who hang, hung himself with an yeah. electrical cord. Oh, interesting. Uh, which is how David hung himself. Hung himself. All right. <laughs> Anything else to say about this episode? Mm, only that uh, when Dodd says, is he listening to me? And 
you cut off his ears. Yeah, that's, that's pretty funny. Pretty hilarious, but really <laughs> terrible. Ba- Bear drinks half and half right from the curtain, and I wanted to throw up. <laughs> that, like, is so gross. There's a lot of eating in this, which I think is really interesting. There's a lot of, like, the definitely the... Um, the Gerhardt family sees eating as very significant. Well, and when Floyd uh, makes Bear eat, yeah. it makes uh, Dodd eat to show that he's on her side. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, episode three is called The Myth of Sisyphus. Rye is the lead suspect in the Waffle House murders, but no one can find him. Lou and Detective Ben Schmidt show up at the Gerhardt estate. But Ben is in their pocket. Simone, Dodd's daughter, helps Hansi find Skip, the typewriter salesman, thinking he has something to do with Rye's disappearance. Dodd buries him in asphalt when he doesn't know anything. Ed and Peggy fake an accident to cover the hit and run. You said just there that Ben is in their pocket. Only because they say that they have judges in their pocket and it feels like Ben is... I guess he's not quite in their pocket. Like, he's not being paid by them necessarily. But it's it's a surprising moment when they show up at the Gerhardt estate and he's, like, friendly with them and and they know him and he knows them. And Lou is like, we're officers of the law and we're talking about a crime here. And and Ben is just like... Oh, how's your mom? Yeah kissing their boots and giving up his gun yeah i just wanted to make uh to nitpick on the in their pocket because i think it's more complex than that that ben is compromised certainly and weak certainly Mm -hmm. and a bad cop certainly and lou finds himself based without an ally in that scene yes exactly but i think it's actually it's more complicated it's more complicated than in their pocket because ben isn't strong enough even to be bribed like they don't Mm. need to pay him off you're right yes right yeah you're totally right yeah um so the myth of sisyphus so the myth of sisyphus the myth itself is about sisyphus is punished by the gods to have to push a rock up a hill every day and then it rolls back down and he has to push it back up again once again futility it's about futility it's about you know the worst punishment that the gods imagine for an intelligent creature is to have to do a futile job forever it's also a work by uh, Camus in which he analyzes by the way Kafka Hmm. in the myth of Sisyphus um, as well as analyzing Sisyphus and what Camus says in the myth of Sisyphus in his work is that we must imagine Sisyphus happy Camus says, our life is futile. We are, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, Noreen tells us this. Yeah, life is a joke. Life is a joke because you're all, you're going to die in the end. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's in this episode that she says that. I don't remember which episode she says that in, sorry. No, me neither. Oh, I didn't make a note. Oh. But uh, what Camus says is you have to, seeing the joke is what'll let you imagine Sisyphus being happy, pushing that rock up the hill every day, mm-hmm. because even though it's going to roll back down, you push it up. Life is absurd. That doesn't mean that you can't enjoy pushing the rock up every day. Yep. Why is that the title of this episode? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> every time you ask me that, I go, I don't know. Like, I know what the myth is, but like to apply it to this specific episode I don't know. It's always about futility and it's about 
you know, it's futile for them to go to the Gerhard estate and ask about Rye. Yeah. Because, for one, they literally do not know yeah. what's going on with Rye. They don't know that he has killed someone and has been killed. And it's futile to go because Ben will just kowtow to them and Lou gets no results whatsoever. Right. So, in the literal futility, everything they do is futile. Which isn't the same kind of futility as Sisyphus is, though. No, because Sisyphus not quite. is about continuing the grind every day, even though it doesn't move you any further forward. Mm-hmm. But I think, like, there's a lot of what everyone is pushing for in this season is very Sisyphusian. Like, I'm going to grow my empire. I'm going to protect my family business. I'm going to, and we see that. We're going to stay the course with. Ed and Peggy always talking about, yeah, you know. We're going to re- get our house. Ed always wants to have a house and a baby and a kid. A baby and a kid. A house and a kid and a... And a shop. Shop. And none of those things are ever going to happen. Mm-hmm. And we, by season... We, by episode three, already know that that is never going to happen for you, Ed. Yep. And Peggy wants to be actualized. And we know that that's never going to happen either. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And Lou wants to catch the murder catch rye and we know mm-hmm. that that's never going to happen and what does i mean what the gerhards want is to maintain their family but we already know that's not going to happen mm-hmm. if for no other reason we we can see it coming in a lot of ways but we know that rye is dead so their family isn't going to Rye is dead, and Otto has had a stroke, so things yeah, are not going to not be going maintained. Well. Yeah, absolutely. And Mike and the Kansas City want to take over this territory, but we already know that that's futile, because Dodd's never going to go along with that, and the family, like, mm-hmm. everyone in this episode is working towards goals they're never going to achieve, absolutely. and that we, the audience, know they are never going to achieve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Alien Connections... In this episode, uh, one of the Kitchen Brothers is holding a UFO magazine. Really? There's a there's the guy at the gas station. Lou pulls in for gas and everyone's waiting. The gas crisis is, you know, happening. And everyone's waiting for gas and Lou pulls in and this guy, like, gives this big long rant about how there's aliens and how they took... They're gonna. They people say they're gonna probe you in places, but they're not. They're really friendly to be. They're here to help us, kind of thing. Yeah. And in the in the car, when Peggy is driving the car, there's a, just a fraction of a news report that has for green men. They're very friendly. And now, whatever with the weather, you know, it's just like part of the news report is kind of talking about aliens. And it's like it's just an ever present thing. Yeah. And this is the episode where the the guy in the gas station, that's where the line about their caretakers at the zoo yes. comes from. It's not from War of the Worlds. Mm-hmm. It's from there. Their purposes says, are more benevolent, he says. Yeah. Yeah. Stories told. Mm-hmm. Ben Schmidt, the Kansas, the Fargo cop, tells... Who, who is in season one, by the way. Who is he's in... The, he's the bit of a prick from yeah. season one. He's uh, Gus's boss. Yeah. He tells Lou the story of Dieter Gerhardt and his son Otto uh, and how the Gerhardt family syndicate happened or how the Gerhardt family organized crime family Mm -hmm. grew and happened. And he 
Also, he compares, he makes war references. I mean, the mm -hmm. two of them tell slight war stories, but also when Ben is talking about Dieter and Otto, he talks about Dieter died and Otto took over, and the good news is World War One's over, but the bad news is here's Adolf Hitler. Yeah. Right? So he's, you know, casts the Gerhardts as extremely threatening and and perilous. Yeah, absolutely. Peggy tells Ed the story of her uncle who committed fraud to cover up his drunk driving. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know either one of those. I mean, I'm, I'm... It says to me something about Peggy's childhood. Yeah. That she would know this story and be okay with it. And that shows a certain moral ambiguity that she already had before hitting Rye and covering it all up. Right. That she thinks of the rest of the world as things she can manipulate for her immediate advantage. Mm -hmm. Because that's exactly. what she's been taught to do. Yeah. There's also, I mean, it's almost a story that is told by Betsy in the beauty shop. Were you going to mention that? No? No. Okay. In the beauty shop. Well, Betsy starts talking about the crime that was committed and she just says exactly what happened. She says, you know, I don't think the person who, who hit Rye had anything to do with it. They must have done a hit and run and took him off. And she's exactly like Molly Yeah. in that. Is that like it's this curse of Cassandra? Like she tells the exact story about like this is literally exactly what happened. And and then people are like, no, that can't be what happened because why would they drive away? Yeah. And Peggy is there knowing that she literally just said what happened and she jumps in with why wouldn't they go to the cops right away or whatever. Yeah. But. Yeah, I was going to draw attention to, I wasn't thinking of it as a story told, although you're right, it kind of is, but I didn't yeah. want to move past this episode without talking about Betsy and how smart she is. She's mm -hmm. been, before this episode, we already know that she's very smart. She talks over the cases with Lou and mm -hmm. like helps him solve them. Yeah. Uh, in the last episode, in episode two, she says like, oh, mommy's doing daddy's job again. But here we see it even more clearly, and you're totally right. That, yeah. Like, where Molly gets her detective skills is... Both parents. Both parents. Yes. Yeah. And Betsy's the one who sees the whole story right away. Molly is watching, in this episode, a um, TV. Mm -hmm. And what she's watching is a Reagan movie. And the Reagan movie she's watching is The Eagle's Nest, which oh. is the same movie... That later on, later on Peggy's going to watch. Oh, know that. So already in this episode, Reagan's coming up again. That specific movie's coming up again. Uh, Molly's watching it. Hmm. And then there are two questions before we move on from this episode that I don't necessarily have answers to, but I can't move past this episode without asking them, which is one, when we first meet Hansi, he's killing a rabbit and it's intercut with his child and there's a magician pulling a rabbit out of a hat. Hmm. And then he kills... Like, first he's cuddling the rabbit, and the rabbit is coming out of the hat. Then he kills the rabbit. And then later on, he's skinning the rabbit. Mm -hmm. What's up with the intercut with the magician in his past? His past is pre-Gerhardt. That moment of his past? That moment of his past. It seems to be some kind of, like, I would say residential school. Yeah. And so it's like the rabbit is for cuddling until he's with the Gerhardts, and the Gerhardts have made him kill 
Right. And who he's killing that rabbit for is for food. He brings it back and skins it and cleans it, and it's clearly going to be in the food for the Gerhardt family. And so that is Hansi's role, is to be this killer. But at one time, he was a child just watching a rabbit come out of a hat like it was a happy thing. Right. I think. But he doesn't smile in the flashback. Mm, He's looking at it. But he's a stereotype, so... He's a stereotype, so stereotypical (laughs) engines don't smile. Exactly. Yeah. We'll, before we're done this episode, we'll talk about him. But, uh, like, I wondered whether the rabbit here, yeah, represent, is symbolic of his childhood innocence or of innocence in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe just innocence in general as well, as there's a lot of death of innocence. And he's skinning it, when he's skinning and cleaning it, it's with Simone there, who is in this time in her life of passing from childhood to adulthood and navigating that and screwing it up a lot. Yeah. You know? And so she's trying to transition and her innocence is dead, but her adult competence doesn't exist yet. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then the other big question I have about this episode that I, we can't move on until we say is, what is up with Ed and Peggy having a telepathic conversation on the bus? I don't think that was actually meant to be telepathic. I noticed that too. I think it was showing them driving on the bus quietly and we're hearing the conversation that they have later when they're in bed. Okay. And I kind of expected it to then show a little flash of them actually saying it in bed, but they never do. I think we're meant to assume that it is a later conversation, but it's also to add to this supernatural element that it does seem like they're talking telepathically. I'm like, even if we think that they have that conversation out loud at a different time before or after, or even like five minutes before on the bus, for all we know, Mm -hmm. the way that it's shot is the two of them sitting, talking, and their lips aren't moving. Mm -hmm. So why shoot it in that way? Yeah. Is it emphasizing... See, I think there's two ways possible of reading it, and one, I think makes more sense to me than the other right two people sitting next to each other talking without talking maybe is a way of emphasizing their connection you know we can read each other's minds but i actually think the opposite yeah like they're, they're sitting they're next not. to each other they're talking but they're not talking mm-hmm. even when they're talking they're not talking to each other and they're sitting next to each other not moving their lips they have to communicate but they can't communicate mm-hmm Absolutely. And that's very much Ed and Peggy don't communicate properly throughout this whole thing, Mm -hmm. this whole season. There's a connection to the movie uh, Fargo, Mm -hmm. uh, which is when Hank is in the beauty shop talking about the crimes, he says, and for what? For a little bit of money? Hmm. That's the line that Marge Gunderson says says at the very end of the movie Fargo. Hmm. And for what? For a little money? Mm-hmm. Hank doesn't say what Marge says, which is, there's more life than money. Yeah. Don't you know that? So, episode four, Fear and Trembling. We get a flashback to Dodd as a child killing a man in a mob shootout. Simone sleeps with Mike Milligan and lets him know where Otto will be. Kansas City thugs attack them in the parking lot, but leave Otto unharmed. The Gerharts negotiate with Joe and the other Kansas and the rest of the Kansas City syndicate, but they're having none of it and order the Gerharts complete surrender. 
Hansy tracks Rye around town, threatens Sonny at the garage, and finds Rye's belt buckle at Ed and Peggy's. Lou questions Ed and Peggy, but they don't cooperate. Lou spends the night outside with his gun and his rope. So Fear and Trembling is a book or a philosophical work. It's not really as long as a book, an essay, by Soren Kierkegaard, Mm -hmm. who's one of the principal figures of uh, existentialist philosophy. Fear and Trembling is about Abraham and Isaac, uh, the biblical story of Abraham and Isaac. Uh, And if you're unfamiliar, Abraham has a son, his only son that's been promised by God, Isaac. God commands Abraham to kill his son, and Abraham is ready to do it until God stops him at the last minute. Kierkegaard says that uh, what we have in the story of Abraham and Isaac is what Kierkegaard calls the teleological suspension of the ethical. That is, you put ethics on hold to achieve a greater end, which is obedience to God is greater than ethics. And Kierkegaard, uh, in... Fear and Trembling, Kierkegaard is really criticizing Kant for trying to pretend that Abraham could possibly be ethical Mm. in killing his son. Kierkegaard says, no, there's no way of reading it that it's ethical, but there is a way of reading it that sometimes you suspend the ethical. Mm. So, maybe this reference... One of the reasons this is the title of this episode is in this episode, we have Floyd being unwilling to sacrifice Dodd. Hmm. They're at the table. Dodd won't cooperate. Uh, Floyd says he will cooperate. I can control him. And Dodd just like doesn't show her any respect and like badmouths the Kansas City Mafia and walks out and... What? And, and Joe is very accusing of, like, it's a family business, this can't work. Yeah. And that the ethics, and we'll make a distinction between ethics and... Sorry. Between ethics and morals, right? Because morals is right and wrong, but ethics is the system of behavior that fits a particular context. Mm-hmm. So, mobster ethics says, someone doesn't respect you, you kill them. Yeah. Floyd doesn't work according to the agreed mobster ethics when it comes to her son. She won't sacrifice him. Hmm. She has a teleological suspension of the ethical in the opposite direction Hmm. for the sake of what she considers to be the more important good or the more important value of protecting her children. Mm -hmm. She doesn't follow the rules, the ethical rules of how you run an organized crime family, which would require her to discipline Dodd, like, seriously for sabotaging the peace talks. Mm, Absolutely. And then also, obviously, she doesn't do what Abraham does. She's Mm -hmm. unwilling to sacrifice her son, even though it would be what's necessary for the sake of peace, for the sake of the greater good. The greater good. Um. Yeah. Okay. That's my thought. This is one that I have more clear sense of why it might be mm. called this. There's also um, fear and trembling, as well as like I think do think that because so many of these titles are linked to philosophy and uh, nihilism and existentialism, that fear and trembling, the saying comes from the Bible verse: "Work out your salvation with fear and trembling." Yeah, and, so and Kierkegaard is expli- is explicitly referencing, referencing that. that. So I don't know if that 
makes a difference to what we're saying, but definitely it can be both at the Mm -hmm. same time. Also, yeah, in this episode, we hear that Dodd isn't the oldest son. Yes, that was interesting. I loved Floyd naming off her children like battle scars. They all talk about war and their war stories, and Floyd's war stories are... I've had this many children, three have been miscarriages, like some died as babies, one, the oldest, went off to Vietnam and died, and these three are what's left, kind of thing. Right. And so, like, she just keeps naming off, like, this is to a mother and to a woman, her battle scars are her children. And she names them, I love the way that it works, too, because she's naming them not, uh, she's naming them as proof of her strength. Yes, exactly. Right? That if she could live through all of these children, she could live through anything. Yeah. So that's number one story told. You already addressed. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Uh, No, that's as much as we need to, I think. Second one is Lou talking to Ed. He says, when I'm in another war story. A boy steps on a landmine. He is already dead. Hmm. He doesn't know it. Yeah. The rest of us, we see that he's already dead. He asked, and we lie, and we say, oh, it's going to be okay, but we know that he's dead. And mm-hmm. if you'd been to war, you'd recognize the look when you saw it. I look at you. You're already dead, and you don't know it. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of that throughout this whole season. There's a lot of, this person's already dead. They're already dead. It's already done. Yeah. And And in lots of cases, it's true. And that, like, you're already dead is about, you know, fatalism. Mm -hmm. It's about something we talked about in season one, but is coming up a lot here, too, about how your choices don't really matter. Mm -hmm. The things you do, you're already dead. So what does it matter what you're going to do? You know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Is there a UFO? I didn't spot a UFO in this episode. You didn't? No. Oh, it, it's, this is the most obvious UFO in all of them, is that the lights are exactly where Rye saw them when Hansi is doing the tra- is tracking Rye and going oh. through his last motions. He's on the road, and he picks up the piece of the car and sees a bunch of lights in the sky in the same exact place where Rye saw them. Is where he sees them. Is that... Is Hansi seeing it, or is the show flashing back to show us what Rai saw? No idea. (laughs) I think he sees them. But he also is just like... I mean, it's a giant stereotype, because it's he's a tracker. He's an amazing detective in this. And I felt like watching it, if he was only on the side of good, he would be amazing. Yeah. Because he completely finds the evidence that Ed and Peggy killed Rye in yeah. like very quickly. Much quicker than uh Lou Yeah, and, and Lou Hank do. and Lou and Hank never have hard evidence because they never they never bother to search their house, they never search the fireplace, which if they had done it before Hansi got there, they would have known a hundred percent that they killed Rye. Yeah. I said we'd talk about Hansi later. I don't know if now is the time to do it, because this is the episode where it's most obvious to me that, like, 
if he was white, he'd be a detective. But since he's native, he's a tracker. Yep. Is there, like, he's a magical Indian in this episode. Mm-hmm. Is there any defense there is... for that? I'm not sure. It's throughout this entire thing. It's, he's their Indian, he's treated extremely poorly, and we are made to see how poorly he is treated. We're not necessarily complicit in his treatment. It's called out, and... Uh, we're invited to judge the people invi- who are treated him Exactly, badly. exactly. And so, uh, but also there are these, like, very stereotypical Native American tropes that are that he is, that he does these, like, he's the Indian tracker, he has no emotions, he has uh, this past of no, of running away from home or whatever, or, become, or being an orphan, so he's adopted by a nice white family. Not so nice, actually, because it's the Gerhards. Mm-hmm. Um, and just a lot of of things about him are, are very stereotyped, are very typical. Yeah. But on the other hand, throughout the season, he defies some stereotypes, and he also uh, just shows you a, a person, despite him basically being a monster, much like Lorne Malvo, you see the reasons why he is one. Yeah. And it's because of these stereotypes, and it's because he's been made to live in them. Yep. that he becomes a monster and he's not on the side of light because he had no opportunity to be. Yeah. Lou and Hank have had every advantage to be good detectives on the side of light and Hansi has not. And so he is not on the side of light. He's on the side of dark. He's on and he uses his ability to be a good detective becomes instead this stereotype of of being an Indian tracker. And this is what, like, I said a second ago, if he was white, he'd be a detective, but since he's native, he's a tracker. And I think that we can interpret that as, uh, if you were writing the character white, you would make him a detective. But there's also another way of reading it, which is, if this person with these abilities was white, he would be given the opportunity to be a detective of some kind. Mm -hmm. But without it, he becomes what it's possible for, in this society, the path that's open to him, which is to be an Indian tracker, because that's what the Gerhards are going to let him be. Absolutely. There's a connection to Legion again, just that Simone... Set talks about missing, about being sad that she missed the 60s. Free love. And that's a lot like Oliver's speech in mm-hmm. Legion about, is free love still a thing? Mm-hmm. Just, Girls in summer dresses with no bras, and that's, that's who Simone exactly now who is. Simone is. Yeah. yeah. Even though it's not the 60s, she's... She wants to be that. She's yeah. not wearing um, a summer dress, but yeah. Eventually she is. She wears big coats over summer dresses. Yeah. <laughs> There's also this interesting juxtaposition where um, in this episode, Betsy gets this experimental drug. Yes. And that may or may not be a placebo. And there's discussion the entire season about whether she has Xanadu, the drug, or the sugar pills. And she's, yeah, goes back and forth. And it cuts between her getting these pills and Peggy 
secretly taking birth control pills. Mm-hmm. And it's these two women who are getting these pills to run their lives, and Betsy doesn't even know what hers does. And Peggy is using hers in secret. Yeah. I just found that a really interesting connection to how these two women are, are using medicine. And... And I don't know exactly what it says, but it says something. <laughs> it definitely says something, right? Mm-hmm. Betsy's whole family are hoping that her pills are real, and Peggy's whole family, which is just Ed, is, doesn't even know the pills exist, and mm-hmm. is hoping that, like, he doesn't know the pill exists, but he's hoping that the thing will happen, that the pills are going to stop from happening. Yeah, exactly. Whereas Lou and and Hank and Molly are hoping that the pills will do what they're supposed to do and they might not be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. it is definitely an interesting juxtaposition. Mm-hmm. I'll just point out one more thing in this episode, that in the flashback to the 50s, when in Dodd's childhood, the movie that they're seeing is another Reagan movie. Hmm. And another, by the way, all the Reagan movies in this show are fictional. None of them are actual mm. movies that no? Reagan actually oh, made. I thought, I thought maybe Eagle's Nest would be based on no. a real one. No? Huh. It might That's... be based on one, but yeah. Reagan never made a movie called Eagle's Nest. Reagan never made That's interesting. Massacre at Sioux Falls, and I didn't write down the name of the one that they're watching when Dodd uh, is a child in the flashback, but mm-hmm. I did look it up, and it's not a real Reagan movie. It's not a real Reagan movie. That's a... Oh, and the, the movie that they're watching is an alien movie. Yeah. And so that's another connection with aliens that yes. they're watching that. Um, You're right. I felt like this episode kind of ended on its war, on the, you know, between the mob, the mob war, the whole, you know, this organized crime war that's happening, that's the kind of the crux of the whole season. It's war on these, it's war, and then, but it's also war on cancer. Yeah. That, like, Lou and Hank... And Betsy are kind of suiting up to get ready to fight this cancer. And, and the doctor this... even said, like, it's war. Uh, Nixon declared war on cancer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So episode five is called The Gift of the Magi. And hey, it's Ronald Reagan. <laughs> In the flesh. Uh, Lou is on protection detail for him. Well, Dodd and Hansie tell Floyd that Rye was killed by a hitman hired by Kansas City called The Butcher. There's a sh- shootout in the woods that ends with Joe and one of the Kitchen Brothers dead, as well as many others. Charlie, uh, Bear's son, fails to kill Ed. Ed and Peggy each make decisions that end up countering each other. Ed burns down the shop, while Peggy sells the car to buy it. So the title of this uh, is a reference to an O. Henry story. Um... The Gift of the Magi is a story about a married couple and trying to buy each other Christmas presents, a poor married couple buying each other Christmas presents, and he uh, sells his watch to buy a comb for her hair, and she cuts off her hair to buy a case for his watch. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's also kind of about futility. Mm -hmm. Um, Absolutely. And the almost obvious connection in this episode is Ed and Peggy. Mm -hmm. Peggy sells the car to get the shop, but the shop burned down. Uh, Ed doesn't exactly burn down the shop. Like, it's not really that he makes a decision for Peggy. But anyway, the mm-hmm. it is the same, like, futility. They mm-hmm. try to do, move in one direction, but the other's undoing it at the same time. Yeah, exactly. But I also wonder whether there is a connection with Dodd starting the war for the sake of the family, which 
starting the war destroys the family. Yeah, absolutely. So he, the family business that he's starting the war to protect doesn't exist because of the war that he's starting to protect it. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Stories told, Reagan meets Lou in the bathroom. Yeah. And uh, tell Reagan talks about a movie. He tells a war story. And the war story turns out to be a story of the filming of a movie that he can't even remember the end of. So he says, you know, we were pinned down and we Nazi bastard trying to get us, but we made it out. Or maybe we got killed in that one. I don't know. It was a good movie. See you later. Yeah. Um, Bruce Campbell doing an amazing job. Oh, as yeah. Reagan, Bruce like Campbell. Man. So incredibly good yep. as Reagan in this. Um. And there's a few things to, like, say about that story. One, just, is that the movie that he's describing is Operation Eagle's Nest. Yeah. So it's the same movie that Molly was watching previously and that later we're going to see. Uh, But also, the surface reading there is Lou is talking about his real experience in a real war. And Reagan, because he's an actor and an idiot, (laughs) uh... This this fictional character, Reagan, the real Reagan was also an actor and an idiot, but shh, don't tell. Okay, um, Reagan, because he's an actor and an idiot, the he thinks of his fictional experience as equally significant as yeah. Lou's real experience. Then there's another layer, right? Which is that Lou has never been to war. Lou is a fictional character. Yes. Lou's experience with war is actually exactly as real as Reagan's experience with war. Or Bruce Campbell's experience as with Bruce war. As Bruce Campbell's experience with war, right? Mm-hmm. That none of the, these murders that we're watching aren't real. They're real in the same way that Reagan's war experience was real. Yep. And it just is really drawing attention... Uh, in one of the strongest ways so far in this season, to the conceit that this is a true story is we're invited to think that Reagan is foolish for thinking that his experiences are as true and valid as Lou's. Mm-hmm. But if we stop to think critically, actually Lou's experiences are not true and valid either because this isn't a real story. Mm-hmm. Or this is a, isn't a true story. Yeah. I think, though, in that exper- in that conversation with Reagan, I want to draw attention to something that Lou says, which is, I think, a heart of the whole season in terms of the ideas of the season, which is he says, my wife has cancer. I wonder if the f- sickness of this world, if it isn't in my wife somehow. Hmm. Yes. And I think... They're all seeing the world as sick and the world as bad and the world is going, you know, going worse. And I really think, again, because this isn't a true story, yes, the sickness Mm. of the world is in your wife. Yeah. Right? Lou's world is sick, and that's metaphorically represented by the fact that his wife is sick, but also the world all around him is sick. Yeah. And so because this isn't a true story, much as I talked about in season one that like it really is an act of god that's terrorizing uh mm-hmm. stavros because no holly because no holly is the god of the world in this also the sickness of this world that noah holly has created not 
not real 1979 America wasn't making a real housewife, didn't give a real housewife cancer, but this world of this TV show is in yeah. both the world around Lou and uh, Betsy. Yeah, absolutely. And there's also the other big heart of the season is in this episode, which is out of Noreen. This is the episode where she explains existentialism and absurdism and she's reading Camus mm-hmm. and she explains she's talk, it to she's Ed. talking to Ed about it. She says, you know, it's a joke. <laughs> you live your life and then you die. Camus says, knowing you're going to die makes life a joke. And Ed says, you got to try, right? <laughs> and it's the same thing that Gus said. Exactly. His, yeah. And in season one with Gus, when Gus says, you got to try, we're on Gus's side. We're invited to be on Gus's side. And the rabbi that he's talking to, you know, doesn't disagree with him. Yeah. He basically is like, yeah, I think you do have to try. He doesn't say that, but the expression yeah. on his face. In this episode, in this season, we're more, at this point, more on Noreen's side than Ed's. Mm-hmm. What Gus has to try is to help people. What Ed has to try is to get his white picket fences, American dream world yeah. that is never going to happen. And he would be wiser to be with Noreen and say, like, and what actually happens is you got to try, right? And Noreen says, nope. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny. It's really funny, but it's also like, again, futility coming up in this episode. Mm-hmm. The uh, alien presence in this episode is Molly is drawing all these uh, family pictures. And in one of them, there's just like a UFO floating over top of her family. And it's not commented on at all, but she it's there. And then later on, uh, Hank is looking at her drawings and he says, what is that, a rhinoceros? And then rhinoceros is the title of the next episode. Right. So... Episode 6. Episode 6. So episode 6 is called Rhinoceros. Bear and Dodd are out to get Ed. Ed and Peggy are interrogated separately, Ed in the police station and Peggy at home. And there's a standoff with Bear at police headquarters. Peggy manages to capture Dodd in the basement of her house. Meanwhile, Simone leaks information to Mike, who uses it to shoot up the unprotected Gerhardt Farmstead, killing Otto. So the title of the episode, Rhinoceros, is a reference to a play by the French playwright Ionesco. He's a playwright I was not familiar with, but when I checked with people who would know, if you're familiar with modern drama, you would know him. He's considered by modern drama people right up there with Samuel Beckett. And in the play, which, by the way, Having read the synopsis of this play, I would really very much like to see this play. So if it is ever, uh, there's a production of this modernist French drama here in Newfoundland, we'll go see it. (laughs) Anyway, uh, in the play, the inhabitants of a small French town slowly turn into rhinoceroses, all except for the main character, Beranger. Uh, It is... Usually, the play is read as a metaphor about fascism, mob mentality, and conformity. So in the play, characters start out saying, you know, we have to do something about this rhinoceros problem. And then 
well, actually, you know, we have to see things from the rhinoceros's point of view, hmm. and then they turn into rhinoceroses and destroy the town. And it ends with Beranger can't just can't see things from the rhinoceros's point of view. Wow, that seems really relevant to like 2017 and I the know. world we live in right now, doesn't it? You have to see things from every from the other perspective, and rhinoceros says, "No, you don't." When the other perspective is destroying everything. Because they're rhinoceroses. <laughs> because they're rhinoceroses. I also really it's very absurd, but I would really love to see how this is staged because the stage directions are like you know they have a conversation and his friend transforms into a rhinoceros and destroys the set and you're like wait how do you do that? <laughs> it'd be yeah, it'd be a complicated thing to stage. So, so how does this title connect to this episode? In what way is this episode appropriate for this idea of... Well, if Rhinoceros' play is about kind of mob mentality, we do have like a mob in this in this episode with Bear and his cronies coming to, to be... Like they get called a lynch mob. Yeah. But, or a posse. Or a posse, yeah. You're right. It's, it's very... Yeah, wow. I just noticed how very Cowboys and Indians this whole season is when you say that. Yeah, I- have that in my notes. Yeah. Um but that's they're not like that doesn't that's I mean as it usually is it's not a one to one comparison like they're not a mob that's that's minds have been changed by something they're they do eventually have their minds changed. I mean there's people in this episode it seems like there's quite a few examples of people changing their mind in this episode like Bear changes his mind twice. First, he comes out trying to beat up Dodd and then changes his mind, is persuaded to like bend down for the strap oh, yeah, buckle or strap. Strap or buckle, Ugh. it's a pretty awful scene. But he, you know, changes his mind. And then later in the episode, he changes his mind again when he's at the jailhouse to break Charlie out and Carl persuades him not to. Mm-hmm. So this idea of being persuadable of changing your mind. In Rhinoceros, changing your mind is a bad thing. It seems right, like yeah. Bear changing his mind, especially in the end, deciding not to storm the sheriff's office, the sheriff's police department and mm-hmm. kill all the cops that is a good thing well it's a good thing from our perspective possibly from his it's not because mm. if you you know continue this to the end of bear's life this you know if he had stormed the jail in this situation maybe he wouldn't have died yeah because he would have killed the people who ended up killing him that's true so from our perspective we want lou and tank to win and we want the good guys to win but from Bear's perspective, he changes his mind, and that leads to his eventual death. We also kind of see in this episode, Simone, in this kind of changing your mind way, unsure which side she's on. Mm-hmm. So she's giving secrets to Mike Milligan, but it's in a not because she's wholeheartedly on his side. Though. No. And she is split between sides because she wants her father to be killed but she wants she doesn't want him to attack like the what happens is he comes and attacks the Gerhardt farmstead because it's unprotected and that's not what Simone wanted at all when she yeah. gave him the information she wants you know him to go and kill her dad so she can be free of him but 
But it might so be. she doesn't want to entirely change sides because she doesn't want her her grandmother to be killed. It might be connected to the idea of Rhinoceros that Simone would have been better off sticking with her perspective mm-hmm. than waffling about what she believes. Yeah, absolutely. Not that uh, the Gerhard clan are particularly good to her, so. No, no. Um, stories told in this episode, Mike Milligan on his way to the Gerhard farmstead quotes Jabberwocky by Lewis Carroll. Right. Um, and I think, you know, that's the one, Twas Burlick and the Slithy Toves to Gyre and Gimble in the Wabe. It is a poem about a monster hunt. Hmm. And so he's going to the Gerhard compound to kill the monsters there, or possibly he's the monster going to prey on the, like, yeah. beware the Jabberwock, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. He's maybe the jaws that bite and the claws that catch. It's also, I think, if you're going to have any poem about monsters, about hunting, Jabberwocky is a nonsense poem. Like, yeah. you can figure out what's going on because some of it isn't nonsense, but the beginning of the poem famously is full of portmanteaus and made-up words and words that don't have any meaning. And mm-hmm. it connects to the theme throughout this season of meaning being manufactured, meaning not existing, yeah. searching for meaning and not finding it. Life being absurd yeah. in that way, too. And, and Jabberwocky is absurd. Very absurd. It's also Mike Milligan is off to find, to to shoot up the Gerhard estate to get congratulations. And I think in, in the Jabberwocky, the part that he doesn't quote is, you know, oh, fabulous day, my son, you know, you have killed the Jabberwock. And so... You, and hast thou slain the Jabberwock? Yes. Come to my arms, my beamish boy. Well, this is exactly it, is that what Mike Milligan's end game is that he wants this praise and, the, and to be uh, given things because he did the good did the good deed in terms of in mafia world. And so... And that's the part that doesn't get quoted. That's the part that doesn't, doesn't get quoted. Happen. Yeah, and it doesn't happen. But mm. he's he's looking for that. He's wanting to be the good son, but he's not a son. That's interesting. Um, Peggy tells a story to Hank about the house, about I could leave this house. Why would I stay just for this house? This is Ed's house. He grew up here, his mom washing his undies, his mm. dad, you know, on the toilet. Yeah. The, and she connects for her telling that story. The moral of the story for her is, you know why I collect these magazines. I'm living in a museum of the past. I think that's interesting because on one level, the logical steps there don't connect. Mm-hmm. The fact that she's living in her her husband's childhood home doesn't logically connect to collecting magazines. And even I'm living in a museum of the past, so I collect beauty magazines. That Mm-mm. doesn't make logical sense. No. But emotionally. She travel magazines too. And she says like, there's more life to Minnesota, but she also like, how does that have to do with the museum to the past? But I think emotionally it does make a lot of sense yeah. that she's in this context that she can't control, that she's been uh, grafted into her husband's life and doesn't have a place for herself. She feels like she's uh, another exhibit in this museum, and mm-hmm. so she's trying to have some kind of control, and yeah. she doesn't know how to exert control, so she's doing it in an illogical 
way, but she's doing it in any way that she can. Mm-hmm. Carl, of course, tells Bear a story uh, when he comes out to try and talk them out of storming the sheriff's department. Mm-hmm. Uh, he tells him the story of what's going to happen to Charlie. He tells him two versions. Mm, yes. If you take him out of here, he's going to be a hunted man. If you leave him here, he'll be out in five years. He's a minor. He'll be out in five years on good behavior. Uh, and that's what it's, I think, significant that Carl manages to use a story to make the posse back down when threats of violence couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. So it's And a, that's the whole show is exactly. using stories. Definitely. It's about the power of stories in that moment and in the show. And then this maybe is uh, a little of a stretch to call it a story, but Carl, in the end credits of this episode, are intercut with Carl talking, and he's telling Sonny about the camaraderie of brothers during war. There's no equivalent in civilian life, not in peacetime. Hmm. And I think... That's also really significant for the entire season, that this is a season about people who bring the war back with them. Mm -hmm. This is a season about, even though the Vietnam War, for most of the characters, but not only, um, even though the war is bad and it has damaged them, it's also one of the reasons they want to bring it back is that they had some kind of unity in war that they can't recreate in civilian life Mm -hmm. and they're trying and they can't and they can't make sense of the world without that camaraderie without that connection between each other and that's why the whole season is about society being disjointed and disconnected Mm -hmm. because they've found a connection only through war and violence those are the stories. Those are the stories. Good. Um, in terms of aliens, this is the one episode that I could not find any reference to aliens, and maybe I didn't look close enough and missed it, but watched it a couple times, couldn't see any references this time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to make one more before we move on from this episode. Uh, Peggy talking to Hank says, Hank says, what I don't understand is why when you hit that fellow, you didn't call the police or drive mm. to a hospital. And Peggy says, you say it as if it's happens in a vacuum as if it's check one or check two. And by the way, that's the same thing Rye says when he's talking to the judge. This isn't one of those column A, column Mm, B things. And Peggy says, you say it as if it's column A, column B, but it's like decisions you make in a dream. Hmm. And it's one of many statements throughout the season of decisions aren't yours. Yeah. It's already done. It's It's already done. You're already dead. Everything's already yeah. The way it's going to be. Exactly. Because your decisions don't control what happens. Mm-hmm. And you don't control your decisions. Mm-hmm. And it's this fatalism throughout the whole season. Yeah. I said one more thing, but one more, one more thing. There's a connection to season one when uh, Ed here says, I'm the victim here. Mm. Of course, Lester repeatedly yeah. says, I'm the victim here. And also in Fargo the movie, the... Uh, car salesman whose name I can't remember. William H Macy. William H Macy <laughs> says, "I'm the vi- I'm the victim here." Yeah, you know. So all and I'm the victim here is also something that Ed's not the only one who says it he in this season, that, yeah, but absolutely. he says it in this episode. Yeah. There's also um, in over the credits is the Man of Constant Sorrow playing, which is from Oh Brother Where Art Thou, uh, another Coen Brothers movie. And there's a few different 
references to Coen Brothers things throughout this season. And that, like, that stood out to me because I'm, I'm most familiar with Her Brother Where It Thou as their, one of their movies. Right. So, I mean, it's all about making you realize that this is a show. That you know, yeah. there's a very, a lot of the, the things that they do in all of Fargo. And I think we'll talk about this at a later time, but just they're making you very aware that this is a story and they call it a true story and it's not strictly true. Strictly. Strictly. Not true. <laughs> I mean, well, there's the, the truth of the yeah. ideas is the... So episode seven is called, Did You Do This? No, You Did It. Uh, Floyd strikes a deal with the police. Lou confronts Mike Milligan in his hotel room. And Bear takes Simone to the woods to kill her. Betsy makes a weird discovery in her father Hank's house. Mike Milligan kills the man sent to kill him. And Ed calls, saying that he's got Dodd in the trunk of his car. The title of this episode is a reference to a possibly apocryphal story about Pablo Picasso. Mm -hmm. Picasso has a painting called Guernica uh, that is a reference to a city in the, that was destroyed in the Spanish Civil War. And so the painting represents violence and war and pain and in a, in a Picasso way. So mm -hmm. not represented, not representationally. Mm -hmm. um, it's late Picasso. Uh, and the story goes that while Picasso was living in Nazi-occupied Paris during World War II, a German officer asked him uh, about Guernica, saw it up in his apartment, and said, Did you do that? And Picasso said, No, you did. Hmm. And there's two standard interpretations of that story. Um, one is that it's a reference to the violence that Picasso, the violence and pain and suffering that Picasso is representing in Guernica. So he says, You... Nazi made this pain. I'm just representing it. Um, and the other is a statement about art. So it's you viewer created the art by looking at it. Art exists in the viewer hmm. because it's a, it's possibly something Picasso never actually said, you yeah. know, we don't. And it sounds like a pithy thing. That it sounds like a pithy thing that could be made easily up. made up. It could have been something Picasso said. And if he said it, he could very well have meant both of those meanings at once. Yeah. And it, so how does this connect to this episode? Well, I mean, if it's similar to what we were saying before is it's already done. It's mm -hmm. already, you know, you did this. No, you did. It's blaming. It's kind of, I'm the victim here. No, you did it to yourself. Almost. Who's responsible for the things that happen? And it, it's maybe the most uh, apparent example of that is with Bear and Simone. Yes. That did Bear kill Simone? No, Simone killed Simone. Mm -hmm. um, or did Simone kill Simone? No, Mike Milligan did. That, that yeah. Who's responsible for things is unclear and is shifting, and who seems on the surface to be a p responsible is not who actually is. It's also, by the way, another reference to fascism mm -hmm. in this, did you do this? No, you did. And Bear actually talks about World War One, I, I think. No, it's World War II. Is it if, World War II? Yeah, someone we're, married the German, if, if women not married. If, women, if a woman slept with the German, she would be, her head would be shaved and she'd be banished. And someone tries to say, well, then banish me. I won't, you know, I'll go. I missed whether he was talking about 
after the first war or after the second war. I think it was after the second war. And it's interesting that, by the way, that they're German. Yeah. We had a debate off mic about whether the Gerhards are German or Dutch. No, they're German. But they're German. I was mistaken. Um, But yeah, so they're German, but then he's saying, it. you know, if you uh, associate with the Germans, you needed to be sent Mm. away. And he's making the Germans in his metaphor are the not Germans. Yeah, that's true. Are the Kansas City people. There's also, I think, in the same sense of who's responsible, who's doing this thing, Floyd making a deal with the police. She's not a snitch. She doesn't want, like, she finds herself in this position of not knowing what to do, not knowing who's Mm -hmm. responsible for what she's doing. And she uh, says... You know, I don't know where this ends. And the police say, it ends when you say it does. Yeah, exactly. So it's a bit of, again, of her, them saying, you did this. Mm -hmm. You're responsible for this. It's decisions you make in a dream. Yeah. It's like she can't, she doesn't feel like she's actually made the decision to start this war. It was this confluence of events that started it. And she, so she doesn't feel like she has the power to end the war. Mm -hmm. Stories told in this episode, when Hank is interrogating Floyd in the police station, he tells her, My wife passed away last summer. The last thing she said to me, do you smell toast? Hmm. And he, Floyd is the one who interprets the moral of the story for us, the viewers. She says, different roads, same destination. Yep. Her husband was gunned down. His wife died smelling toast. And we can kind of say we know that that means she had a seizure. Mm-hmm. Different roads, same destination. That's very Camus. That's very yep. what Noreen was talking about, about uh, you die at the end. Yep. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what kind of life you had. Floyd's articulating different roads, same destination. Mm-hmm. It's about Just futility and... A little thing about that story that unconnected to what you're saying. Uh, he mentions his, his his wife was visiting his sister up in Brainerd. Brainerd being the place where Fargo the movie is set. Ho ho! So another connection to that. Also in that interrogation scene, I didn't make a note. I'm pretty sure it's Hank tells this story too, but it might be the other police interrogator because I didn't write down. But he said, I had a boy in here stabbed his parents to death. When I asked him why, he couldn't say. Just came over him all of a sudden. Hmm. And that's another story about decisions made in a dream, about not being responsible for the things that you do, and about the world being rotten. Yeah. There's something rotten in the state of Fargo. (laughs) And it's, yeah. Mike Milligan tells a story to Lou and uh, Ben uh, about a man in a factory who left every day with a wheelbarrow and they couldn't tell. They knew they were stealing something, but they couldn't tell what. They looked in the wheelbarrow and there was nothing in it. Um, <laughs> I like your Magnolian impression. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of easy to do an impression of because it's just, you have to talk in a bit really of an positive. upspeak and a really positive tone. Yep. Um, he's great and I love him, <laughs> despite the fact that he's awful and uh, terrible. Killer, yeah. <laughs> but uh, and the point of the story, you know, so they couldn't tell what he was stealing. And it turns out he was stealing wheelbarrows. Yeah. And the moral of the story, as interpreted by Mike, is sometimes the answer is so obvious you can't see it because you're looking too hard. Mm-hmm. We can't leave because we're the future. They, the Gerhards, have to leave because they're the past. Yeah. The future can't become the past any more than the past can become the future. Um, 
And there's a few things in this story, I think, that make it significant. One is just it shows a difference between Ben and Lou. Mm-hmm. Ben doesn't understand the story because he's a crappy cop and a crappy detective. <laughs> yeah, he's terrible. And Lou immediately understands the mm-hmm. story, sees what the pattern is and who's responsible because he's a good detective and a good cop. Mm-hmm. It's also, I find it weird because that we're the future is not obvious. Like, that's a weird thing to say is the obvious truth. Yeah, absolutely. It's not at all obvious, Mm -hmm. but that's how Mike kind of explains it. Also, this story, just (laughs) while we're on this story, when we first watched Fargo, we watched this episode uh, on a Saturday night. We had watching it on a library DVD, so it wasn't when it was airing. Mm -hmm. We watched it on a Saturday night. We went to church on Sunday, and in the sermon that day, uh, the preacher told this story. Yeah. <laughs> and we were, I was just like, are we living in Fargo? What is going on? Yeah, that was really weird. Weird coincidence. It makes you feel like, like, is my life just like this weird story? And like, what is going on here? And I mean, I was f- really familiar. That story with the wheelbarrow, like, I've heard it before. It's a story that I don't know where exactly, but like, this definitely was not even close to the first time I'd heard that story. And so it felt like, to me, it made Ben, like, extra dumb that he didn't know. Yeah. Like, that Ben was just like, Ben is the detective. It's his job to, like, see things, extra things. And he's like, oh, I don't know. You know, he's just, it really highlights how not smart he is. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Betsy tells one more story, which is that she tells Carl a story about how Lou was supposed to marry her sister, mm. and then he went off to war and things happened, and when he came back, he had to be stuck with her. Right. And that's also, I mean, it's revealing of Betsy's character, but it's also about fatalism, about decisions being out of your control, mm-hmm. but things like they ended up together not because they chose each other. Yeah, I think they did, but in yeah. that story, it's a story about how they just ended up together because they had to. Mm-hmm. She, I really love that scene with her and Carl and how she, she knows she's going to die. Yeah. She's really, she's resigned to her fate, speaking of fatalism, but she's sad about it. She doesn't want to. She, and she's very much like, you know, I'm just a Minnesota housewife in a starter home who dreams of chickens. Like I'm no one special. Right. But she is special to the people around her and this conversation she has with Carl where Carl is just like, and she's like, stop drinking. And I think I get the impression that, yeah, he will. I think Because so. she told him to. And because everyone's kind of in love with Betsy. She, and with good reason. She's yep. the best. Yeah. The, Solverson, the Solversons are the best. Every one of them. Every single one of them. You're going to say UFOs? Oh, um, in terms of alien presence in this episode, uh, it doesn't really have as much this episode as well, but it Betsy goes to Hank's apartment, Hank's house, and he has these weird symbols drawn everywhere. And we eventually do find out that it's because he's trying to write a universal language, but it feels very alien in the moment. And it's not until several episodes later, we find out what they are. We just see this moment of her coming into his room and like the way it's shot is like, he's a crazy person. It's like in the movie, A Beautiful Mind, when like they go into his room and like there is symbols and drawings everywhere and like oh this is shorthand for he's lost it yeah and so it feels like whoa this hank this kind of stalwart father figure cop guy 
he's not something's going on with him that's below the surface and it looks like maybe like was he abducted by aliens and this happened like yeah. that's what, in the moment you might you think that that might be what's what's happening has he been replaced by an alien you know like anything connections to season one uh Hank says, I want to live in a world where people leave their front door unlocked, which yeah. is exactly what uh, uh, Bill, the police chief fit for most of season one, says the same thing. Mm-hmm. I want to live in a world where people leave their front doors unlocked. And they're like 30 years apart from each other. So Bill is nostalgically looking back to the era where Hank is nostalgically looking back to a previous era. Yeah, exactly. Also, we talked about in the last episode, but again, there's references to other Coen brother movies in this episode hank says he'll like if if this happens i'll cut off my toe um that's a reference to the big lebowski where tara reed's character gets i think her name's bunny Mm -hmm. uh gets abducted only she's pretending to be abducted and they to prove that she really was abducted they send her toe right um but it wasn't really her toe (laughs) but cutting off a toe Mm -hmm. is something that happens in the big lebowski yeah and then while Simone is driving over to Mike Milligan's house, the song that plays the, to the hotel where Mike Milligan's staying, the song that plays is I Just Dropped In to See What Condition My Condition Was In, which is also from The Big Lebowski. And at the end, when The Undertaker is coming up in the elevator, the song playing is Oh Death, which is another reference to Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Right. And all three of those songs are very different covers, very different versions from yeah. what we saw in the movies that they're referencing. But in two episodes, we have three songs taken straight out of Coen Brothers movies. There's no way that that's coincidence. Mm -hmm. I mean, Maggie Phillips, the music director who I've, the music supervisor who I've talked about a few times because I think she's fantastic. fantastic. She's way too good for that to be like accidental. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. There may be other connections to Coen Brothers movies. You said... Uh, oh Brother Where Art Thou is the one you know best. I know Fargo, Oh Brother Where Art Thou, The Big Lebowski, uh, Barton Fink, and True Grit, but not really any other ones. Mm-hmm. So if there's any references to other Coen Brothers movies, I'm missing them. And there may be. Mm-hmm. Um, before we move on from this episode, I want to... Oh, Simone also says that she's the victim. Mm, yeah, she does the same thing. Before we move on from this episode, I want to comment on bear in this episode and i hope we'll talk about him a bit at the very end but in this episode he keep he says a lot of things mm-hmm. he, he says a lot like he says about the family there's not enough left of us to start telling the truth yeah or when he's talking to when he's taking simone off and she says you know you're my uncle he says none of us are family anymore yeah and then he also she says i didn't mean to do it i didn't mean to betray anybody and bear says it doesn't matter what you mean it only matters what you do hmm. which is a statement of existentialist yeah, philosophy absolutely. yeah and is also a statement of fatalism and i mean it doesn't it only matters what you do but we've seen through this episode and through this season that you don't control what you do yeah. your decisions don't control what happens mm-hmm. simone is so interesting in that scene like Oh, it's heartbreaking. And like, she's wearing this dress, this like, she's got a big coat over top of it, but it's like this nightgown, this like white flowy, like, she's like this virgin sacrifice. She's being sacrificed for the sake of the family. And while she's like, she's not this pure, innocent virgin, she's, uh, 
she's really naive and she's making these decisions as a child as like, you know, go and kill my father, you know, tell him, kiss my grits. Like she's not the, the gravity of what she's done is not occurring to her. No. And so, but then she's sacrificed and and never gets to learn that. Yeah. Unless she runs away, which is in this episode, they don't show I mean, she says, shave my head, let me go. And he says, it's already been done. Mm-hmm. And then it cuts away. We don't see the shot. We don't see her dead body. Yeah. In fact, we see a shot of where they had been standing and there's nothing there. There's not even a body there. Right. But later on, we do see a shot of her lying dead in the woods. But that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> That doesn't mean necessarily that she was for sure killed. I, I still think it's up in the air whether or not she was Because we definitely, killed. for sure, in this show, see things that aren't true. Yeah, absolutely. We, The camera shows us things that didn't happen mm-hmm. in this show. Exactly. And we can for sure know that. Um, you want to move on? You want to the next episode? Yeah. Episode 8 is called Lop Lop. Ed and Peggy hide out in a cabin with Dodd as their prisoner. Ed tries to negotiate with the Gerhards, then moves on to Mike Milligan. Dodd escapes and tries to kill them. Hansy arrives at the cabin, shoots Dodd, and then is stabbed by Peggy with scissors after asking her to cut his hair. Lou and Hank arrive, but Hansy escapes. So this one's like a kind of a B-side. We didn't see any of these characters the last episode, and this episode we get to find out what's been going on and what causes him to do the phone call to Mike Milligan. And we, even in the last episode, we hear about Hansi has killed three state troopers. And two. Killed two straight state troopers. Yeah, and shot up a bar. And yeah. shot up a bar. And then we see that actually happening in this episode. Yeah. Um, the title Lop Lop is a reference to uh, surrealist Dada painter Max Ernst. Ernst had a recurring bird-like character named Lop Lop who appeared in his paintings, who was an alter ego. So Lop Lop appears and Lop Lop represents Ernst and is his way, one of his ways of dealing with his anxiety and mental illness and trying to uh, put a version of himself in his paintings. So the most obvious, it seems to me, connection to Lop Lop is Peggy also creates this alter ego that she talks to and helps her understand Mm. or helps her understand might be too strong because that suggests that she's correct, but it helps her make some kind of story or sense of herself and her world. Yeah. She creates this, she externalizes a part of herself. uh, And it's also about mental illness. Right. Yeah. There's a, it makes me wonder whether like what's it does Noah Hawley have something hidden in the show. That's him. Yeah. And if so, Ernst's lop lop is not, recognizable without him explaining so Mm -hmm. it doesn't look like him or like you only know that it's his alter ego because outside of the text he tells you hey this person is me so if noah holly has an alter ego in the lop lop sense it would not be an alter ego that we would be able to identify just by looking at the text Mm -hmm. but it does suggest that maybe there is one maybe there's someone in here who noah holly feels is him Mm mm-hmm and it shouldn't be, we shouldn't expect that it's someone who is recognizably like Noah Hawley in any way that we can tell from the outside. Yeah. Um, I also noticed uh, Lop Lop is a bird, 
and there's a moment where when uh when Ed is hanged, he's almost flying like a bird, like he's hovering there in the air, and that felt very bird like to me. I don't know if that's on purpose or not, but I felt like that could be mm-hmm. like a visual that looked like Loplop. Also wonder about in terms of alter egos, we get a sense in this episode, I think most strongly, well, maybe this episode and the uh, episode nine, the next one, about Hansi and the face that he shows isn't his true face. Mm, absolutely. So there's something, there's some disconnect between Hansi, what we see of him and who he is, and that's this alter ego. Like he is walking around presenting himself in one way, and then we see glimpses in this episode mm-hmm. of him not being that like when he goes into the bar sits down and asks for a glass of water for a second he's just a tired guy who wants a glass of water yeah then they spit in his water and call him names and he asks for tequila and becomes once again the like brutal killer that mm-hmm. we've seen him be before and the, the stereotype and the stereotype that we've seen him be before yeah and then when he the face that he shows when he says to the bartender, like, I'm a, did three tours in Vietnam and would have a purple heart and a bronze star. Mm-hmm. That who he is isn't who he is showing, isn't who he seems to be. Absolutely. And then even more when he goes and asks Peggy for a haircut, he is revealing either he's considering creating an alter ego or he's revealing that the face that he has shown us through most of this season is an alter ego yeah he's going to change his appearance and therefore change who he is and it's connected i think to that sitting down and having a glass of water that like i'm tired of this i want to be someone else mm-hmm. that's lop lop yeah absolutely that moment in the I mean, when he goes into that bar and like they don't even talk to him. Like, they don't even... He doesn't do anything besides be Aboriginal before they... He spits in his drink. And he references... And the the bartender references Wounded Knee. And they leave. And the three guys in the bar come out and make fun of him. And he shoots them in the knee. Right. You know? Like... I did he, not notice that he wounds their knees. He wounds their knees. That's pretty good. And he kills the bartender and he kills the two uh, cops that show up. And it feels like you're on his side in terms of like, they treat him terribly. And I'm kind of glad that he shoots them because they deserve, I mean, not really in real life, but like they deserve it. They deserve retribution for their disgusting treatment of him. But then he also just continues and he kills the cops that come too. And like, that's not, that's just more senseless killing. And there's an aspect too of him, him mentioning, not for the first time, but that he was also in Vietnam and he's the character who's like the Vietnam vet in the Rambo sort of way. Mm. He's bringing the war home yeah. in a, the most literal sense. He's acting like a war, like a sniper in war mm-hmm. and he's uh, haunted by the war in the same way that every other character of the appropriate age is mm-hmm. every other male character. Yeah. Um, stories told in this episode. Yeah. Dodd tells Ed that he was just passing by when crazy Peggy tied him, knocked him out and tied him up. This woman is insane. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think, 
I don't know if that's quite a story. It's a lie. Yeah. But it reveals something about Dodd that he's not tricky. He doesn't stick with that story no, at all. No, like for like it's two seconds. convincing and he doesn't even really try to be convincing. Mm-hmm. He immediately drops it because yeah. compare it to Carl who is able to change people's minds by telling stories. Dodd is not. Dodd is not. Absolutely. Uh, D- D- I love Dodd and Peggy's interactions throughout this entire episode are just like... Yeah. They're they're awful and they're comedy gold. They're, <laughs> they're so, so like and she just like joyfully stabs him because he's not being respectful to her. And you're like, he kinda deserves to be stabbed, but also she's acting crazy and he like has every right to be completely scared of her. Yeah, she is extremely unhinged and scary, yeah. but you know Yeah. Totally. And what we said earlier about that she's collecting the magazines because she's trying to exert some kind of control. Mm-hmm. Here she has an opportunity to really exert control and it's cathartic for her to stab a guy. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. And we can, at this point, I think, really see why. We both want Dodd to be stabbed and we kind of want Peggy to do some stabbing. Yep. Even if she is a crazy, murdering, hallucinating, yeah. crazy person. Um. She uh, she also, just in terms of their interactions, maybe my favorite interaction is she asks if he wants beans, and he says no, and then she <laughs> feeds them amazing. anyway. And she's like, oh, you said no, didn't you? He's like, no, they're good. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, major story in this episode is the Reagan movie. Yes. Peggy is watching a movie about uh, World War II, a Ronald Reagan movie, Eagle's Nest, the same movie that Reagan mentioned when he was in the bathroom with Lou. Also the same movie that Molly was watching earlier. And the show goes right into the movie for Mm -hmm. a while. And we don't have, like, we're just seeing the movie ourselves. Yeah. And I think that's really effective at showing how Peggy is disconnected from reality. When we come out of the show, Dodd has escaped because she's so immersed in the show that uh, her real situation stops existing. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's also this same movie is the one that Peggy will later think is really happening. Mm-hmm. So they're trapped and they get smoked out and uh, she's convinced that their real situation is mirroring the movie and mm-hmm. it turns out that she just is unhinged from reality. Yeah. Finally, Dodd tells a story to Ed while he's hanging him about how Satan is a woman. Mm. I've got a theory that Satan's a woman. And I think it's significant uh, that Dodd gets the facts all wrong in that theory. Mm -hmm. So, like, I mean, specifically the evidence that he gives that Satan is a woman is he he looked back at all the kings, King David and King Samson in the Bible. But no, Samson wasn't a king in the Bible. Um, And it's all in the Bible stories, like Scheherazade. And like, no, Scheherazade Mm -hmm. is not a Bible story. That's... 2001 Nights. And, and Scheherazade is the good guy. She's going to be murdered for being his wife. So, like, and tells the stories. So, like, Scheherazade, not evil. Even remotely. Even from, like, a misogynist point of view. How is she evil? She doesn't let him do what he rightfully should, which is murder him. I suppose her. that, yeah, and that is what Dodd thinks. Dodd, Dodd's misogynist rantings uh, end up being his undoing, which I appreciate. He gets so distracted while while he's hanging Ed, giving this misogynist like speech that he doesn't notice that Peggy is not uh, has not been knocked out anymore, and she manages to get the upper hand on him. Yeah, I think it's really significant that in that speech he is not, doesn't have uh, 
control of the facts. So he's, yeah. I mean, we can intuit that and figure out already that he's a misogynist and the devil isn't a woman. And, but they're really highlighting how wrong he is by making him like use evidence that is incorrect. Yeah. Um, the uh, alien presence in this movie, uh, the gas station that they go to has all sorts of posters and things about UFOs and like the, I don't know, it doesn't say the truth is out there, but along those lines, mm-hmm. there's, uh, it's not alien presence, but it, like, it's a weird foreshadowing thing is in the phone booth where, Ed, where Ed keeps coming and making all these phone calls written in marker on the, on the phone booth wall is a game of hangman. Half the letters are missing, but it clearly spells Sioux Falls, and there's a hangman. And that's got two connections. One is that Ed gets hanged later. Right. And also, uh, there's the plaque outside the bar that says, you know, 22 Sioux Indians were hanged here. And like, and so like, it's this weird meta connection between Ed and Hansi and Sioux Falls. And like, it's getting ready for like, what's going to happen at Sioux Falls? Death. Death right. is coming. People can't even see it. Hmm. I to- I saw it as foreshadowing for Sioux Falls, but I didn't uh, recognize the significance of hanging. Yeah. You're, but you're totally right. Before we move on from this episode, I want to draw attention to something. While Peggy is talking to the hallucination life spring guy, who, by the way... Walter! Walter! <laughs> Mackenzie Gray from Legion. Um... He says, the human mind aroused by the desire for meaning searches and finds nothing but contradiction and nonsense. And this is once again an existentialist statement that mm-hmm. we search for meaning which isn't there. So that, and it's significant too that even in this interaction, Peggy is searching for meaning, but actually the life spring guy is a hallucination, which is only telling her things that she already knows because it exists. He exists inside her head. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Connection to season one is, uh, there's a body in the trunk again. Oh yeah. Dodd goes in the trunk much in the way that there, that, uh, Lauren Malvo had a body in the, in the trunk. Good point. Someone kidnapped and put in the trunk and Lester, is also, also in, a trunk. in a trunk later in that season too. So episode nine is called The Castle. Ed and Peggy are arrested, but agree to, to a scheme to catch Mike Milligan. Lou is run out of state, and the rest of the cops congregate at a motel in Sioux Falls. Hansi sends the Gerhards to Sioux Falls to retrieve Dodd, and the hotel is an absolute bloodbath. Every one of the Gerhards and several cops die. A UFO turns up while Bear is choking Lou giving Lou the last-minute advantage. Ed and Peggy escape. So the title of this episode, The Castle, is another Kafka reference. The The Castle is a novel by Kafka about a man who moves to a village governed by a mysterious and bureaucratically obtuse castle. Mm -hmm. And he, much like in The Law, the man tries to get into the castle and can't... um, I think the clearest connection to the castle in this episode is in Lou, who throughout this episode faces this bureaucratic obstruction. He wants to be there and help. He's the one who knows he needs to be there, but the bureaucracy and the hierarchy prevent him from being effective or being helpful. And they even, you know, literally run him out of the state in a very Kafkaesque, because we're in charge of you and 
we're not like that's insane. Yeah, <laughs> right? exactly. Um, stories told in this episode. I mean, the, one of them is that this episode begins with a book instead yeah, of beginning the, with the text. This is a true story. This whole episode is a story that's narrated by Martin Freeman, who is Lester, but in his British accent, his real accent. So if you only knew Martin Freeman from Fargo, you wouldn't uh, necessarily Mystical, recognize yeah, him. Yeah, that's true. Um, but yeah, and there, like you said earlier about the show drawing attention to its showness, mm-hmm. um, the alienating its audience by making the fact its uh, constructed nature obvious, mm-hmm. and it's really doing that strongly in this episode with the book and the voiceover makes it the whole thing a story in a new kind of way yeah absolutely it is always framing itself as a story yeah a true story that we're telling you something that happened but uh this is in a new way i love it by the way yeah i I love that framing device it's beautiful this episode is really really good and i really like this aspect of it i love how restrained they are by having it be only one episode that they do this in. Mm-hmm. They could have done the whole season this way. They could have had it start with a book and have that narrator present the whole season. But it works so well just doing it one episode. I feel like the the way they restrain themselves is uh, just makes it much more artistic and much better to yeah, watch. A better watching experience. Definitely. Um, other stories told. Hank tells the uh, South Dakota guy the police i don't know if he's a sheriff or a state or whatever yeah but he tells the guy uh i had a lieutenant in the war he called he told eisenhower to go to hell once because his orders would have gotten us killed i send that man a card every christmas because i can Mm -hmm. and this is his uh argument against uh the chain of command and authoritarianism Mm -hmm. that yeah i'm all for the chain of command but sometimes the person at the top of the chain of command is wrong. Yeah. And he really is in this case. Like, all of his cops die. Yeah. And then the other big story told in this episode is all those cops, during their kind of stakeout, are talking about pissing. <laughs> like, it's liberating pissing where you're not supposed to. When I was a sergeant, I pissed in my CO's desk drawer when he was in Hawaii. And they're like, what is that about? Why are we telling those stories? I feel like... It's a couple of things. It's it's showing that they're they're not good people necessarily. Like I mean, they're 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 cops who use their power irresponsibly. Yeah, and so like they have the power to pee wherever, and it's just like it's kind of gross. It makes you not, like kind of think of them differently than like you wouldn't have Lou and Hank sitting around telling stories no. like that at all. And so it makes you be like, oh, these are like not as good cops. And then the other thing is, it's really significant that there's a woman there, that mm-hmm. there's a female cop who uh, kind of tries to join in on that. She tries to be one of the boys, but she she can't be. She says even like, oh, I couldn't do that. You know, I don't have the equipment. Ha ha ha. And there's a there's just like a thread of feminism throughout this entire season that I think we'll talk about more. But it just in this moment, she you see like really significantly like this woman can't be one of the boys in this situation. She can't talk about this way that like men can pee everywhere. And even she talks as if like she tries to, right? She Mm -hmm. talks as if she can, she's in their 
crude talk, but she, yeah, her her tone is as if she is one of them, but the dialogue she speaks reveals that she isn't. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there's aliens in this one. <laughs> so, like, you know, obviously this is the most significant aliens in the whole season that they come straight out of the sky. There's the big flying saucer that hovers over all of them. And, I mean, it's weird. It's really weird that there's been this alien presence in this episode. And But it seems like if we are giving the aliens any kind of personality, they're benevolent. Because they show up, Lou isn't killed. Yep. He gets the advantage and manage and because they all stare at, up at this flying saucer, Bear gets distracted and Lou is able to kill him. I think the most profound statement on the meaning of the aliens in the whole show comes in this episode from Peggy. She says, It's just a flying saucer, Ed. We gotta go. <laughs> yeah. She's so unfazed. Like it's just the, like in Peggy's mind, yeah, that's just something that exists because she is living in this fantasy, bizarre world, and I guess we're all living, like, in terms of the world of Fargo, they're all living in Peggy's world, in right. which in which aliens can exist. And do. And, and do exist, and have some kind of... Wait, wait, wait. Are you telling me that you, you don't think aliens exist? That's a conversation for another time. I don't, <laughs> bl- I don't believe in flying saucers. <laughs> what? <laughs> do you? Of course. <laughs> Good. That's that's interesting. <laughs> um, yeah. So so many. I mean, like, there's so many things in this episode. It's it's amazing. And like, and this is the episode where we see the narrator talks about Hansy and whether why he betrayed the Gerhards and like what right. what moment led to his decision to do that. And you know, it's everything from way back when when Dodd was like, "He's my man. Don't talk to him." To he asked Peggy for a haircut and made himself vulnerable and wants to escape this life. And it's once again, just like the last episode, we're really at the same moment as we are depicting Hansi as a monstrous, cold-blooded murderer. Mm-hmm. We're humanizing him enormously. Yeah. That all these, uh, I mean, we would call them microaggressions, calling him a half-breed, uh, yeah. And there's macroaggressions, but all the like times when people were just like, oh, the half breed's off doing this. Yeah. The- You're Indian. Like he belongs to them. He's their slave. All of those were uh, affecting him. Yeah. And he doesn't show it at the time, but like maybe it's been building in him since he was a child. Mm-hmm. And we flash back to him watching the magician and like already then he's some part of him is resisting the role that he has been assigned and he resists it in, you know, a violent and, uh, mm-hmm. in a violent way. And so, a socially unacceptable way. <laughs> socially unacceptable. Well, explicitly it says, you know, he's killing friend and foe alike. Yeah. And, and strangers, he can, he kills like Ed and Peggy try to get into some guy's car and he just shoots that guy in the head. He's a complete bystander. Yeah. But it, there's an aspect of the show drawing attention to the fact that, you know, systemic racism hurts everyone. Mm-hmm. Literally Absolutely. hurts everyone. Literally hurts everyone. So yep. he uh, is the one. And again, going back in, uh, to, did you do this? No, you did. Well, who actually caused this massacre? Hmm. Is yep. it... Hansi, or is it 
did Hansi kill that guy in a car, that bystander, or did Dodd by mistreating Hansi? Or yeah, there's a image I want to draw attention to before we move on from this episode, which is when uh, Floyd is on the phone with Hansi and he says, "You know, the Kansas City, they're here," and she says she's going to go herself because she sent men and they haven't done it and mm-hmm. she's going to do it behind her. And she leans against the wall when she's done. And on the wall is line chalk lines for the heights of her children. Right. And does that. And it's full of bullet holes hmm. from when Mike and the Kansas city people shot up their house. Right. And it's such a complex cluster of imagery and mm-hmm. symbolism because Floyd remember how she defines herself in that meeting with Kansas City as a mother and and when she's talking to Hank you wouldn't understand none of your mothers yep, exactly being a mother is enormously important for who she is and why she does what she does mm-hmm. and it's where her strength comes from in that uh negotiation with Kansas City but it's mm-hmm. also where her weakness comes mm-hmm. from in that same negotiation yeah and we have this the height of her children it reminds us that bear and dodd and rye and elron were uh, once children once children yes i don't think we mentioned i suddenly mentioned elron and it's uh dodd's not the oldest mm-hmm. right yeah think- that's really significant to to the whole show is that dodd isn't the oldest he's always trying to live up to his brother and bear tells the story of his older brother and how he didn't wear a coat when everyone else was wearing a coat and that shows like his toughness and like what, what would have this story been like if, if uh, Elrond was there to be the older brother, which also kind of goes to what would this story be like if the Vietnam war hadn't happened? Right. Like there's so many little things that contribute to this exact story and all playing th- out and all throughout Dodd is trying to be, the kind of tough that Elrond was and failing to be. And that's yeah. why he's so full of swagger and starting a war for no reason. Yeah, exactly. Because real toughness doesn't have to prove it's tough by start by escalating wars for yeah without a reason. Yeah. Um, but back to Floyd and the bullet holes on the yeah. wall, right? So her, her family is what she's doing this for her family and her role as a mother, her identity as a mother is what motivates her. But the bullet holes are also foreshadowing that her kids are not going to live through this. Mm-hmm. She's not going to live through this. The family is, has, uh, ended. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's really, uh, rich imagery. Yeah. Uh, connection to season one. When they, when they break into the hotel room and are shooting, and when they break into the motel and are shooting things up, mm-hmm. Ben Schmidt says, "Oh, it's Rapid City all over again." Back in season one, old Ben Schmidt, when Gus tells him that he let Malvo go, old Ben Schmidt says, "Oh, it's Sioux Falls all over again." Yeah. So <laughs> there's at least <laughs> one more story further back in time that we could go to that we could have a season four could be Ben Schmidt and Rapid City if we yeah. wanted to. Uh, if you're listening, Noah Holly, we don't really need to see that story. That's no. okay. I'd much rather see Noreen's story. Yeah. Oh, yes. I don't know if we mentioned that, that she was emancipated and... Yeah, we find out in episode eight, I think, yeah. that she was emancipated. She's not... She's not Bud's daughter, which what you really... Or what I really assumed. Yeah. Yeah. When Lou... At the very beginning of this episode, Lou is talking about Ed and Peggy, and he's treating them like... 
I can't leave them behind. He's very much like, this is war. He is in his war mentality. Mm. And there's no man left behind. And he can't leave, you know, Ed and Peggy on the front lines. Because they're not prepared for it. Lou is very much in his war mentality in this. And then that's basically what it is. Right. Is they are on the front lines of this incredibly violent war. Yeah, good call. Episode 10 is called Palindrome. Ed and Peggy try to run and end up in a freezer. Ed dies while Peggy hallucinates that it's on fire. Hansy manages to escape. Mike Milligan tries to take over the the territory, but is rewarded for his good work with a desk job. All returns to well in the Salverson house, but the shadow of death is still there. So the title of this episode, Palindrome, is not, as far as I can tell, a reference to any philosophical work, play, or Kafka story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's just a palindrome is a word or phrase that is the same in both directions. Yeah. So like uh, a man, a plan, a canal, Panama. Race car. Uh, madam, I madam. Um, I can't think of any more palindromes. <laughs> There's the, tons the, of them. The answer to madam, I madam is Eve, <laughs> which is also a palindrome. We could just spend the rest of the episode naming palindromes. Let's not. <laughs> Let's talk about how this episode is a palindrome of the season. Go. So there's a couple of moments that I want to bring out. Uh, see what, what you thought and what I thought. Uh, we're back in a butcher shop. Mm-hmm. They end up in the Ed and Peggy end up in a freezer with like butchered pigs, and it's like exactly the how Ed started in a butcher shop. We end up back uh, with uh, the massacre at Sioux Falls is the very very start of the show, yep. and this is the end is the massacre at Sioux Falls, and so we're right back to the beginning again. There's a couple of small things like. Mike Milligan is given his his new office, and there's a brand new typewriter on the desk, not just for women anymore. Right. It's, you know, the, the whole typewriter thing at the beginning comes around again, that he, he, he gets to sit in an office on a typewriter. Then there's the connection to season one, where Betsy has this dream of Molly's future, oh. and it is literally what we see. We see further into the future than we did in season one. And it's like, you're like sad. And I'm sad too, because it's so beautiful. And Molly's there and she has a son. And sad, then, but it's happy. It's beautiful. Yeah. I'm so happy to see Molly again. Adult Molly. Yeah. And to see season one, Lou Salverson again. Yeah, exactly. And, and she doesn't know whether that's, that future is going to come to pass. And of course we do sort of, but it's also, We've already seen it happen. Even though it's the future, it's coming around full circle. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that that vision, like I'm really curious about what that vision is doing for the show. And I think one of the things, one of the many things it's doing for the show is we don't know whether it's going to happen. Just because we've seen it before, it's the show's way of saying, this is a show. This is a supernatural element show. Yeah. Turns out, people have visions of the future, but that doesn't mean they're going to happen. You saw that Lou was still alive in season one. That doesn't mean Lou is necessarily going to live. Yeah. And it puts uh, it all in doubt. Stories told in this episode, the major one, or a major one, is that Betsy's story, the vision Mm -hmm. of the future that she tells. Yeah. Um, Lou tells Peggy... 
a story about the end of Vietnam of the Vietnam War. He says, I was there when Saigon fell. Helicopters uh, were landing on his ship. And then a big Chinook comes, too big to land on the ship. And people start jumping, scared or not. They jump onto the ship. And there's a baby. And a mother drops the baby out of the helicopter. And one of his men catches it. Uh, the pilot somehow rolls the Chinook over and jumps out and makes it. Um, how did he do that? And then the moral of the story that Lou is telling to Peggy, mm -hmm. as he understands it, is, Your husband said he'd protect his family no matter what. I acted like I didn't understand, but I do. Hmm. It's the rock we all push. Reference to Sisyphus. Yeah. Men, we call it our burden, but it's really our privilege. Mm-hmm. And that's a long story, and it's a profound story. It's about, I mean, it connects to all kinds of the themes and ideas throughout the entire season. Yeah. We've talked about feminism in this season, and there's, this is kind of an anti-feminist statement. Yeah, yeah. That from it's a men's character privilege. we like a lot. Yeah. It's men, men's privilege to take care of women. And Peggy's like, you don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. There's also, uh, in terms of like the entire show, a cop with a with the perpetrator in their backseat telling a story to them. That's yeah. in the movie, that's in season one, and here it is again in season two. Yeah, for sure. Hansy, the guy who shows up right at the very end to give Hansy his new ID, mm -hmm. uh, tells him a story about... His new ID says his name, Hansi's new name is Moses Tripoli. Mm -hmm. And Hansi, and the guy who gives him the new ID tells him a story about how Tripoli was conquered and conquered and conquered. You see where I'm going? And he doesn't. So where is he going with that story? Why is your name, new name Tripoli? Tripoli was conquered and conquered and conquered and conquered. Mm -hmm. You see where I'm going with this? Nope. Do you? Nope. <laughs> is it about how Hansi, how Tripoli, despite being conquered, continues to exist? That Hansi, so. despite being conquered, continues, continues to, to exist? exist? The story, that guy's kind of lesson he's trying to give Hansi is that all empires fall. Hansi says, I'm going to make a new empire. And he says, it's going to fall too. Mm -hmm. Hansi says, I don't care no. if it's going to fall. He calls him Tripoli, maybe as a warning again. Against trying to start a new empire? Maybe. Possibly. I don't... I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. um, but Moses Tripoli is another reference to season one of Fargo. Really? In... Uh, I can't remember which episode of Fargo, the number, but the when we see the mob in... The Fargo mob uh, in season one... And they're eating fish in the restaurant, and the mob boss is like, uh, Sam Hess, the people involved, dead. Don't care, not business. Don't care, not related. Dead. That mob guy's name is Moses Tripoli. Hmm. And in this episode, right at the end, one of the last things Hansi says is, don't care, empires fall. Don't care into the sea. Dead. So he's saying the same, yeah. he has the same speech pattern, the same things to say, and he has the same name. And, and they say, like, you're going to get a face guy, and so, like, he's going to change his whole appearance. 
And that means that, uh, he, if he founds the Fargo mafia, like he kills, he's, if he founds the Fargo mafia. Then when Lorne Malvo kills off the Fargo mafia, this is like this war between the Gerhards and Kansas city is still ongoing. Yeah. In season one. That's interesting. And also like, so why doesn't he, you couldn't, no amount of plastic surgery is going to turn, uh, Hansi into what we see Moses Tripoli in season one. Mm -hmm. But if you think of the, this is a true storyness of this show and you think of what you're watching is actors recreating a true story. Right. So they cast a different actor to play, uh, that same character, but that doesn't, the fact that they don't look alike doesn't necessarily mean that they're... Well, and like Lou Salverson is a different yeah. actor. Lou... Same with uh, Ben Schmidt. He's yeah. Really- There's no way that the Ben Schmidt of season two ages into the Ben Schmidt of season one. Yeah. Right? Because it's not... It's a dramatic reenactment, and mm-hmm. they're not hiding the fact that these are actors playing these real-life people. Yeah. So Moses Tripoli is Hansi, is still alive in season one... And is the same character. Well, and there's they're watching while this all is going on. They're watching two boys play baseball. Dark hair, light hair. The older one is deaf. And they're making sign language to each other. And it's clearly Mr. Wrench and Mr. Numbers as children. Yeah. And then he goes off and they start getting bullied. And Hansi walks towards them with a knife. And like, does he then, you know, if we take that scene in our imaginations... He kills the bullies or maims the bullies in some ways, takes Mr. Wrench and Mr. Numbers under his wing and starts, and they become enforcers to start the new. Yeah, totally. And this is why they're like connected to Moses Tripoli is because Hansi rescued them at this point. Yep. More stories told. um, Corporate mafia guy tells uh, Mike Milligan about Donahue rejiggered the mailroom and they were so happy that they gave him California. Yeah. So he tells him that, you know, how the world is now that the soul crushing, like murder, oh. murdering people is soul crushing in a different way. Yeah. But like, you're going to live in this office and do paperwork, mostly work with accounting. And that's the point of that story. I mean, and one of the points of that story told is corporate mafia guy, whose name I didn't write down tells, I uh, might change that haircut. The 70s are over. Mm-hmm. Put on a suit, sit in a windowless room, and push the numbers. Mm-hmm. Because the 70s are over, and this is what the 80s are. Yeah. This is corporate America. This is what Reagan has been, is going to make happen. Yeah. We're waiting for, waiting for Dutch, as the first episode is. When he comes around, this is going to be the world, is the 80s corporate, corporate big business world. Yep. Hank tells the story right at the end about the weird symbols. Finally, uh, Betsy asks him about all the weird symbols that yeah. she found in his office. And he says, after your mother died, I was feeling pretty low and I got to thinking about miscommunication. Mm-hmm. Isn't that the source of it all? If we could just understand each other better. And so I started working on a new language, love. You 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 draw a house. And the, the examples that he gives of Things that everyone understands are home and mm-hmm. love. Yeah. A house, you know that that's home. Draw a heart, you know that means love. Not only is he think that 
you can solve problems by just communicating better, which is extremely naive, but also yeah. sweet. Yeah, absolutely. But also the things he wants to communicate are home and love. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, Hank's the best. Hank's the best. This little family, this little three-person family, four-person Molly isn't in the scene, but she's in the family, is so wonderful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so lovely. And this is, and you know, what uh, Betsy says when he gives this whole thing is, you're a good man. Yeah. And he says, I don't know about that, but I like to think I have good intentions. Mm-hmm. And once again, and now we get back to intentions and finally intentions do matter. Yeah, exactly. Intentions. And this is, uh, you know, the counterpart to bear. It doesn't matter what you mean. It only matters what you do. Hank's kind of saying, I like to think I have good intentions. It does yeah. matter what you mean. Your yeah. intentions are important. Mm-hmm. Because that's why you do good things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, this is a, uh, we don't actually hear it told, and I don't know that it has any meaning, but I'm going to bring it out here. In the last scene, moments, Lou puts away on the shelf a bedtime story that he has been reading to Molly, and it's The Great Brain, mm-hmm. which is a story about, uh, I mean, if you know The Great Brain, it's... Um, the main character uses his brain and his muddy loving heart to trick people and perform all these schemes. And, but at the end he gives up on an opportunity to get money so he can help another kid. And then Mm -hmm. it says in kind of like a postscript that this is a story about his, that he grew up to become a priest. Hmm. Interesting. So it's all through the great brain. He's like this scheming, uh, kid that the comedy all comes from him hoodwinking and scheming but it ends with him deciding to be help to help and he later in life hmm. that's interesting becomes a priest so that as a story that lou is telling to molly yeah about using your brain but also helping people yeah absolutely connections to legion yeah and to season one uh, ben Schmidt says the wor- the wolves were at the doors. Yeah. I mean, there's wolves in other parts of this season, too. Uh, when Floyd is mentioning, you know, oh, people used to have tons of children because, you know, what would take them? Smallpox and blah, 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 and wolves. She mentions wolves specifically as what would kill your children. And that's like... What in the season one, there's that story that Lauren tells about wolves. And that's really, yeah, the wolves are at the doors. Noah Hawley has a thing about wolves. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, I actually think that the wolves here are not an explicit, that the fact that there's wolves in both seasons and in Legion Mm -hmm. is because Noah Hawley is very interested in this metaphor and symbolism of wolves that Mm -hmm. this is imagery that it's very attractive to him yeah predator and prey kind Mm -hmm. of idea um hansi gets musically horn cues that are very similar to the devil with yellow eyes in legion hansi keeps showing up and it goes yeah i noticed that um and i don't think that that's meant to symbolize that he's demonic or something Mm -hmm. but it's you know we have the same composer and he's it's probably Literally the same 
cue because when we talked to Jeff Russo, he said that that was like a that those horn cues used in Legion around the Devil with Yellow Eyes was a cue that they just had recorded. Hmm. They didn't make it new at first. They eventually did, but the first was just someone like the sound technician put in a sound cue that he already had on file. Hmm. Uh, and then Jeff Russo liked it and developed it and played with it more. Yeah. So it could be literally the same sound effect. Yeah, absolutely. In this episode, it's just like the previous episode. It departs from the, uh, what we have gotten used to about the yellow typewriter font saying this is a true story. Mm-hmm. In this episode, that's given to us in voiceover by Lou. Yeah, I noticed that. That's this is a true story, says yep. Lou. Mm-hmm. Because once again, it's drawing our attention to the artificiality of the medium that we can't expect it to continue in the same way because this is a made up, like it's saying the words, this is a true story, but we're having the character who isn't real, like it's reinforcing that it isn't a true story yeah. at the same time as it's telling us that it is. Yeah. Um, it's brilliant. We also see in this episode that Simone, we also see Simone's dead body in this episode. Yeah. If, we talked about that earlier that like, if that's real or not, we see a lot of shots of like everyone in their dead places. And it is mean that they take all these dead bodies one after another. And the last one we see is Betsy lying. Uh, and that as the voiceover says the words out of respect for the dead. And we see Betsy, the last in a list of corpses. Mm-hmm. And then she flutters her eyes and gets up because yep. of course Betsy's not dead yet. Yet. But of course, I mean like, yeah, I think it's really significant that they don't kill off Betsy in this, that she's not, She's not dead yet. This is still a story of his wife is sick, but she's not dead. And I said a second ago, happily, of course, Betsy's not dead. But there is the fatalism we've talked about all the way through in that, like, she doesn't have to die. Like Mm -hmm. Bear said, it's already done. She's already dead. And that's why out of respect for the dead, and it shows Betsy, and she doesn't die within the course of this season, but we know that she dies. Yeah. Uh even if we hadn't seen Lou as a widower in season one, we know enough just from this season that Betsy is going to die of this cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in one sense, in the sense that we have seen through the whole season of people being already dead, she's already dead. Mm-hmm. And that's why she's included in the list of people who are dead. Yeah. So do you want to talk about the whole season? Yes, I do. <laughs> so I want to talk a bit about feminism I just got to talk about it right away because okay, I have a lot of my th- things in my head about it is that Let, let's talk about some isms and start with feminism okay so let's we've got these female characters we've got Floyd we've got Simone we've got Peggy we've got Betsy mm-hmm. Floyd is very second wave feminism where she is trying to be a man in a man's world. She's being this, she's taking over the family business and being, and yeah, trying to be fully doing exactly what a man would do in this job. She even says, right, there's no such thing as men's roles or women's roles anymore. Exactly. And she says that to Simone, Mm -hmm. who is very much living in this third wave feminism where like, it's my body. I'll do whatever I want with it because I'm a woman. I can do whatever I want with my body. 
Yeah. And she doesn't want to listen to Floyd's, like, we fought long and hard to be, to have equality with men. You know, don't take, don't take that away. And she's kind of a specifically, uh, naive and poorly thought out version of third wave it's feminism. Exactly. Yes. And no, no shade on third wave feminism. She's, yeah, she's a naive version of that. And then we have Peggy, who she's very like, uh, Betty Friedan, the feminine mystique is all about like housewives have this feeling in them that they can't put their finger on. And it's this lack of, uh, it's a desire for more. Mm-hmm. And Peggy is like the poster child for this. She desires more. She doesn't, she, she doesn't want to be what Ed wants. She doesn't want this, like, mm-hmm. we settle down and we have our house and our white picket fence and our 2.5 children. And that's, you know, that's what life is. She wants more and she wants it so much that it is making her crazy. Yeah. That, yeah. like, she wants to be actualized. She wants to fall for, like, like, Life Spring was a real thing and basically not quite, but a cult. And if she had fallen for it, if she had ended up, really going down that road, she probably would have lost a lot of money Mm -hmm. and not become actualized because there's no such thing as actualized in that way. She, she's, uh, she's so like, she's so representative and exaggerated version of, of that world of that, you know, on the edge of, she wants to be a career. And she says like, they say you can have it all. You can have a career, you can have a family, you can do that, but you can't. Right. And what do we make of that, like, her speech at the end about, uh, and if you can't do it all, they say there's something wrong with you, like you're yeah. deficient, you wouldn't understand, you're a man, and Lou kind of... He doesn't understand. Doesn't understand no. at all. And Lou kind of shuts her down with, people are dead, People Peggy. are dead, Peggy. Yeah. Do we think that it's hard because for most of the show... Lou is such an attractive and likable character that we are very inclined to be on his side to think of him as a moral truth speaker because he's an extremely attractive character. Mm-hmm. But in this interaction, what do we think the show, where do we think the show is landing? Is the show saying like, people are dead, Peggy, get mm-hmm. some perspective. Yeah. Or is the show saying, you didn't understand your man? Mm-hmm. Might be saying both. Mm-hmm. I feel like Betsy is a different version of Peggy. Mm-hmm. Betsy also wants more, but she's even worse. Like she's been being taken away from it completely. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. We see Betsy's competence and we've remarked on it earlier that, you know, ah, oh, just doing daddy's job for him. Yeah. And it's presented as if like, isn't Betsy great because she's smart and, uh, competent and she's as good a detective as Lou is but there's a real undertone especially when you see it highlighted through Peggy there's a real undertone of so why isn't she a detective yeah because that's not an option that's open to her yeah and I think the show even if the characters don't the show recognizes the tragedy of that yeah absolutely and she's helping to build a world in which her daughter can be that yeah and I mean, there is a female cop in this, but she has to be very male in her interactions. We we only see her a little bit, but like, yeah. And she's also, 
she has to go around and give everybody their clothes and take notes on things. It's very subtle, but the female cop is the one who is doing these kind of feminine roles of she's a little bit of a secretary. She's a little bit of a like mm-hmm. mothering figure going around giving out all the jeans and t-shirts that they need. And she tries to be crude, to be one of the boys, possibly to escape that role, and yeah. it's unsuccessful. Yeah. In in much the way that Simone is doing that. Like, she keeps, she says twice, like, sometimes a girl's just got to bust a nut, you know? Like, pretending to be a man. And, like, it's just, it's all this swagger, and in the same way that the, the swagger is for Dodd. Yeah, absolutely. In the opposite way. We want to. Do we want to talk about uh, in the context of Peggy? Do we want to talk about Constance? Yes. Oh, yes. And That's their relationship. Yeah. Is we never. I mean, can't believe we didn't bring this up the whole time. Is Peggy doesn't want to have sex with her husband. Right. She doesn't want to have children. She is secretly taking birth control, and Constance clearly wants to have sex with her. Like that. We see Constance's like the camera is in her viewpoint, like, going up Peggy's body. When she's in the hotel, she has, like, wine and roses and candles. She is full-on seduction mode. And the, uh... I watched it one of the times with subtitles so I could watch it on fast speed, and the subtitle even says, romantic music. Yeah. (laughs) Like, if you weren't clear that that music is intended to be romantic, that that situation is intended to be romantic... Yeah. The subtitle writer is clear that that is intended to be a romantic situation. That definitely Constance is a lesbian. Peggy may or may not be. I really, the first time watching it, I really thought that we were going to end up with Peggy leaving Ed for Constance or having an affair with Constance or something. Like, I thought we were going to make that text that she's lesbian. I think um, it's actually way better what does happen mm-hmm. that she doesn't want ed and she doesn't want ed suburban life yeah she wants much more than this provincial life <laughs> but that doesn't mean that she is a lesbian i mean it's i think playing with that conflation of feminism and lesbianism yeah that constance is both a feminist and a lesbian peggy is kind of flirting with both yeah Absolutely. And she's even, we're confused because she's confused about, does she want to have sex with a woman or does she just want to be in control of her life? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Those seem to her like they might go together. They might even go together. Yeah, absolutely. She's, I think the idea of going to California for Peggy is so much, is like Simone's idea of, I wish I still lived in the, still, I wish I'd lived in the sixties where I could be, you know, flower moon child. And, that's the same thing that Peggy wants is she wants to like go and be free. And somehow like California is kind of where there's still some hippies and I can go and find some freedom there. Even if I'm in prison, even if I'm in prison. Yeah. Yeah. She wants right at the end. She's, she's so delusional that like, well, I guess I'm going to go to prison for this. Well, I've heard about there's a prison in California that overlooks in San Francisco that overlooks the Bay. Maybe I can go there and Lou is just like, yeah, we'll, we'll see. We'll see what like, we can do. what? Oh, what? Or like, yeah. yeah, that I could be tried federally so I could go. Like, do you even know what tried federally means? Yeah. Like, that might even, that probably at this point in time means the death penalty is on the table. Yeah, I would say not being a historian of the American criminal justice system, yeah. but 
I seems very likely to me that tried federally, she's in danger of being executed. I don't know what state they, I don't know whether they had the death penalty in uh, Minnesota at this time or ever. Yeah. Some states do. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk a bit in this. Are you done talking? Yeah, about, yeah, yeah. I want to talk about um, all through we've commented on existentialism, nihilism, and absurdism. Mm-hmm. And I want to say a little more about that here at the tail end of the season. And one thing is just to be clear about the d- difference between those three. We talked, kind of used them almost interchangeably throughout the season, but existentialism is a philosophical position that argues that there is no inherent meaning in the world. So we as humans create meaning. We make things meaningful ourselves. That's existentialism. Nihilism says we can't create meaning. There's no inherent meaning in the world and we are not capable of creating meaning. So there isn't meaning possible Mm -hmm. the difference between existentialism says there is meaning but it's the meaning that we create for ourselves and nihilism says there isn't meaning at all Mm -hmm. absurdism which is Camus which is what Noreen is uh, reading Mm -hmm. absurdism comes after nihilism and says there's no meaning we can't create meaning it's absurd to try to create meaning but we gotta try anyway Mm -hmm. There is a you-gotta-try aspect to absurdism, that you recognize that things are absurd, and then you move forward anyway. And Camus says, you know, pushing the Sisyphean boulder up the hill is absurd. You're never going to get anywhere. You can't pretend that you're going to get anywhere, but you can be happy doing it anyway by recognizing its absurdity. Hmm. So, and Camus thought of himself as being, like, thought of nihilists as his philosophical enemies. The worst thing to be for Camus was a nihilist. So he Hmm. was trying to find a way to, he kind of thought that they might be right, but he was trying to find a way not to agree with them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. If pushing a rock is absurd, that's what Hank says. I mean, that's what Lou says being, protecting your family is. And that's maybe what... That's how Peggy and the other women see it as that's absurd. Mm-hmm. That's not, that's, yeah. All throughout uh, this season, um, I think the Betsy has kind of the final word on absurdism, existentialism, nihilism in this season mm-hmm. when Noreen kind of presents once again her Camus to Betsy and life is absurd. There isn't any meaning. And Betsy says, that fellow must not have had a six-year-old girl. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And she says, you know, she places it in a religious context. She says, you're going to stand before God and account for what you've done. And you're going to tell in that you're going to tell and that it's all just a Frenchman's joke. Mm-hmm. So she's, I, I am very, all through the season, we've been wondering and playing with and figuring out, like, is there meaning in this world? Yeah. Betsy gets the final word and she says, yes, there is. Mm-hmm. Is that where the show ends up landing? Well, and the, if the meaning is the future, 
what is the future in this? Mm-hmm. That she, her meaning is, is, uh, is her daughter, which is representative of the future. And everyone else seems to think like the world's getting worse. The world's getting worse. But Betsy goes, no, it's not. Yeah. It's my daughter. My daughter's not worse. Yeah. And I think that's really significant. And even Charlie, who seems to be the sole surviving member of the Gerhardt family, or sole surviving adult, I suppose there's still some children there. Uh, are there? They yeah. Said there's I, children in the farmhouse. There's Right. Yeah. Uh, he is He is this future, and he is a good kid. He does some stupid things, but you get the impression that he is going to be better because of this. Remember Charlie, he wants to go shoot uh, Ed and Mm. then he He meets Noreen, meets Noreen and he goes out and talks on the phone and says, maybe I do want to be a lawyer. Yeah. Right. And then he goes back and he, he does shoot at him, but he has, he, he has his encounter with the reality of the life that he has been, uh, idealizing yeah and it drives him back to what his mother wanted for him Mm -hmm. the last ism i want to talk about uh and i don't know what to make of it but i want to bring it up is fascism is comes up several times in this season Mm -hmm. the vietnam war is important in this season but also world war ii is important in this season and a lot of the titles are references to works of art or philosophy that came, that were created during fascism or as a response to fascism. Mm-hmm. And why, where is fascism relevant in this season? What is this? I don't have an answer. I don't know if I do either. Reagan is coming. Yeah. And we don't call Reagan a fascist. No. But. He's authoritarian in a way that Carter wasn't. Certainly. Yeah. That maybe what this season is about, I asked and said I didn't have an answer. And then as soon as you said Reagan, I started to (laughs) To think think about it in a different way. That maybe why fascism keeps coming up is this sense throughout the season of the world is broken, the world is wrong, things are messed up. We've made jokes throughout this episode of they want to make America great again. Mm -hmm. And that's what they do, right? It's the conditions of pre-World War II Germany are the conditions of pre-Reagan, pre-Trump America, Mm -hmm. where people start to feel like the world isn't what it ought to be. And that's when they turn to an authoritarian conservative figure to make it right again. Mm -hmm. And all the references to fascism emphasize how uh impossible and undesirable that is yeah absolutely and and how no matter what year we're living in whether it's 2008 or 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 1979 they're still going it used to be good yeah it used to be good back in those days oh those days were good and like no matter how far you go back it's always just craving that oh it used to be good when guess what it didn't they shot 22 they hanged 22 sioux indians yeah that, is that when it used to be good? No, it isn't. I want to say bef- about uh, the aesthetic of this season mm-hmm. and all the split screens. Yeah. And that's partly, a big part of it is that's just the 70s aesthetic. Mm-hmm. But it's also 
This season is all about division and perspective and communication and the split screens, seeing two different people and what they're doing at the same time. That is about, I think, perspective yeah. and about um, division. And there's even scenes where like p- two people are in the same car and it split. Yeah. The screen gets split. So we're act- could easily show that in just one shot, yeah. but they're splitting the screen and it's, Connected to uh, the artificiality of the medium, reminding Mm -hmm. us this is a TV show. But it's also all these characters are separate from each other. They're unable to see each other's perspective. They're unable to understand or connect to each other. Mm -hmm. And we are encouraged to see all of their perspectives and discouraged from seeing... Because we see all of their perspectives, we're discouraged from seeing any of them as entirely right or entirely wrong. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Even Lou and Hank, who are pretty great characters, we split away from them and see someone else's perspective at the same time. Because, as Hank says, miscommunication and mass- lack of understanding is what breeds all this mm-hmm. violence. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I think... In the end, for this season, this is the most connected to Legion I've ever seen Fargo be. And I think uh, there's so many, the whole 70s aesthetic to it and the the music and the, I mean, the actors in common is is making me love this season a lot, especially because I love Legion so much. And the idea at its core of what is real. What is real. I think we've gone incredibly long. We both have yards more notes to make <laughs> about this season, but we're going to just have to leave it unsaid. Yep. Maybe if you if you uh, chat us up on Twitter, we'll keep going on Twitter about yep. more thoughts or, about or the on, season. Or on email, whichever. Um, we're going to have uh, do a season three, same thing for season three, in a couple more weeks. And then we're going to do a fourth one because we had too many notes. So we'll do... Uh, Fargo as a whole, fourth episode that probably won't be two hours long. God willing. <laughs> in in another another fortnight after that. So look forward to that. Thank you so much to all of our, our Patreon support that made this Fargo thing happen. If you want to get talk to us more about it, you can email us clockworkscast at gmail.com. Hit us up on Twitter at clockworkscast. Uh if you want to be one of those supporters on Patreon, patreon.com slash clockworkscast. And we also have a Facebook page, oh, yes. uh, which is facebook.com slash clockworkscast. Or you can just search clockworks on Facebook. Yep. Um, thank you very much for listening. I've been Paul Moffat. I've been Jan Moffat. Goodbye.